Hey everybody, good to see you. I love that newbie panel. Um, and uh, I was having some issues with my camera. I keep forgetting if I have another screen open with my camera activated, then uh, it doesn't work. But I'm here now. Struggle I know. Continues. I know these are like serious, serious problems. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm pumped to get into this this lore panel. And uh, you know, I think we can safely say, Jen, that this was the best episode of the season. And uh, I know you agree with me, so you don't need to respond to that. You don't polarizing. Need to polarizing. I, I don't agree. Uh, this was very much a filler episode for me. I liked the more contemplative. Filled with liked... drama. I, yes, there was some heavy drama. There was some heavy drama. And it was not a terrible episode, but it was not my favorite episode. But you know what? My favorite storylines are the Numenorians and um, Adar. I love seeing Adar. And so... Those are my favorites. So this was naturally not my favorite episode, but it was not the worst episode. And um, I did really appreciate a lot of the longer monologues. Obviously, Owen Arthur was delivering just Oscar worthy, just beautiful, beautiful stuff. A lot of passion, a lot of um, range, emotional range. Bravo um, to all the actors. Um, and then and his father. Oh, my goodness. Can't recall the actor's name, but Peter Mullen. Yeah. Peter Mullen, thank you. Peter Mullen is so fantastic. They managed not to be cheesy. I don't know. Mm. They they it it would be so easy in those like ridiculous beards and ridiculous costumes to act to act in a way that um is is not over the top, but is befitting of of a dwarf. That's just so hard to toe that line, and they both do it just beautifully. Um, so I know we got uh, a couple other panelists and, uh, I love this crew. We got a really, really full crew here today. Um, joining us as always, I don't think you've missed a week is Strider. Nope. Um, I'm a bit borderline feverish, but I've got my, uh, mirror war. I've got some Atlas T. So, you know, pushing through the seventh for pushing through the sixth episode. This, this episode made you really just feel flush, so hot with excitement. That's what I'm yeah, hearing. Yeah, indeed, indeed. That's, that's a good way to put it. Uh, <laughs> and we got joining us again uh, from Fellowship of Fans, Hen. How are you? Fine, fine. A little bit buzzed, but very, very fine. Okay. All right. I'll, I'll try and match that energy. And joining us for the first time from Fellowship of Fans is our own uh, commander of the Northern Armies, um, you know, King of the Elves, uh, our own Adar. Uh, Harry, Fellowship of Fans, the father of the Fellowship of Fans YouTube channel. Hey, great to have you here for the first time this week, Harry. Yeah, thank you for having me on. I have lost my voice a bit, but yeah, I'm excited to discuss. <laughs> Apparently, the whole Fellowship of Fans side is... <laughs> you guys, it, get it, it together! It's been a wild no. week. <laughs> yeah. Good. Sick, buzz, yeah, no voice. Sick. This is going to be a nail-biter here. Like Let's it. go. Oh, Let's yeah. go. Co recovery from the sixth episode. <laughs> James, can you give us a full house? Are you suffering from some sort of uh, malady this <laughs> week as well? I, I am not. I'm feeling great. Uh, yes, well, let's makes, go. That makes two of us. So, uh, yeah, let's officially welcome to the stream James Tauber from the di from Digital Tolkien. Um, I'm very, very excited to have you on. Thanks for joining us, James. I'm thrilled to be here. And uh, for those who don't know, uh, James is also co-hosting the Rings of Power wrap-up um with uh alan sisto from the prince pony podcast and um that's been going great i've loved your contributions that show is just rolling right along uh, without missing a beat so um i will confess i listen to that every single week excellent so 
let's just dive right into it and uh, let's kick this off the way that we always do, which with just sort of an open form, I want to go around the table and get everybody's thoughts about the episode. And I want you to do that by give me one word, one word that sort of sums up your feelings about the episode, the themes, whatever, whatever word comes to mind, word or short phrase. Um, we're not too, we're not going to hold you to it. Uh, and I'll, I'll kick it off here. My word is crisis uh, because I think all of the characters and all their arcs, uh, we're hit a very important moment of crisis. We're leaving this episode. All the characters uh, are in crisis and they're branching off into sort of a new unknown path. Um, Prince Duran has just been uh, his, his father. Not only is that relationship hit uh, a real big problem from a father son perspective, but the king has just said, you are no longer the heir to the, to the throne. Um, and so that's a real big emotional crisis for Prince Duran. It's also kind of a political price crisis. We see him talking to Disa and they're almost plotting to not overthrow the king, but, you know, really go their own separate way and pursue their own ends and not they're not respecting the, the king's wishes. We see something similar with uh, Galadriel after after the, you know, Mount Doom erupts and she sees that basically she blames herself for everything that's come to pass for the Numenorians, all the death that she sees around her. She kind of blames herself and we see a much wiser Galadriel. Um, dealing with the guilt of everything that's happened and, uh, and then, you know, reconnecting with, with Tarmiriel who has her own sort of emotional crisis, actually a physical crisis. She loses her eyesight and yet she is sort of reinvigorated and uh, decides that she wants to, um, she hews closer to the faithful than ever before. And she kind of picks Galadriel up in that way. And she's saying, we're going to come back stronger than ever. And then Elendil, who was of the faithful is now just, ravaged by the belief that his son is dead and he's now kind of turning away from the faithful at least for a moment you know he's dealing with that grief and not in the strongest way um and then of course the harfoots their caravan is destroyed which is the lifeblood of their community and uh you know that is a huge crisis for them and at the end of the episode they decide four of them they're gonna branch off and chase the stranger down they're gonna go off path right so uh, every single plot line in terms of the relationships, the emotional core of their storylines hits a major, major crisis and they branch off in a new direction, which to me just feels like everybody is looking over a cliff going into the finale. And the finale, I, I think, is going to push everyone off the cliff. It's going to be, I think, really significant from a, just a dramatic narrative perspective. So usually I don't give such a long um, uh, discourse on my feelings about the episode. I try and just be the host. But this is my favorite episode. I think it did the best job of, in terms of dealing with the actual character narratives. So crisis is is my word and um i'm gonna hand it off now to strider yeah well i think you summed up very well my word was struggle or all the right ish one of those two uh, as usual i always have some bones to pick with with every episode uh but it's like some chronic issues so not necessarily something crazy that happened this episode but i the reason why i would go with struggle is pretty much all a lot of things that you said we are now dealing with the aftermath of what happened with, you know, Mordor becoming Mordor, and uh, what that's what that's going to mean for um, for everyone moving forward for for the whole continent, and um, of course what happened to the to the Harfoots, what ha what's happening with the dwarves and the elves. There's struggle struggles on on multiple layers. Some are political, some are emotional. Some are geographical, some are like existential and so on. But yeah, a lot of struggle uh, across the board. And I'm very excited to see. I, I really, I, I cannot wait to see what, what, what's, the, 
what will be the peak of the season, what's going to happen in the next episode and how they will um, follow up on all the setup that we've been getting and everything that's been happening so far. So, yeah, struggle, but hopefully some of it will be resolved. So, yeah, that's yeah. my so far. Crisis, struggle. Harry, how about you? And people in the chat, give us your one words as well. I'm, I'm curious to see what everyone thought. But uh, Harry, how about you? Um, my one word is, um, I think, I'd say journey. I feel like we are still mm. on the sense of that. We're trying to still get to this destination. And I think we are going to finally see that in the next episode. But this episode was lots of walking, talking, the characters getting preparing for what's going to happen in the final episode. It it was a bit... I was fine with understanding his building up to the finale. There was a lot of, you know... Um, as I said before, people in the woods, you got the Theo and Galadriel one, and then there's a few. So that's what I'd say. Lots of getting towards finders initially with the Harfords as well. Like with Meteor Man, they are they made it to the grove. Lots of traveling and stuff. So that's how I would um I would um say so yeah for that episode. Nice. And I'm also seeing in the chat uh Pointless, very bored, exasperation. All right, some negative thoughts. That's okay. You're allowed to have those. Uh, but also self-inflicted. We see some self-inflicted wounds in this episode. Uh, woe. Every character ends up in woe. So that's... I, I like those. Hen, how about you? Uh, I would call it... Same kind of sentiment. I would call it build-up. Not build-up in the sense of the first five episodes, but just in the sense of... I have a friend, uh, someone I know, who would call this sort of thing a cinematic comma. But uh, but no, no, I don't mean that in a derogatory way. It's like, it's fine. It's building up to the finale, basically. That's what this episode really is. And that's, you know, a choice that you see in a lot of shows and stuff. It was very much like if you try and chart what happened in the episode, it isn't much like actual like incident. There isn't a lot of it. I agree. Yeah. It's really just building up to the finale, which is not a concept that I have an issue with. It's fine. I thought it, like, the, in terms of pacing, it clipped along nicely, sort of got into a groove and went with it. I was fine with that, so yeah. Well, I, I, I find myself probably at odds with everybody in the chat and probably everybody on this panel because I thought a lot happened in this episode in terms of the characters' relationships. Not a lot happened yes. in terms of events. I mean, you're yes. 100% right there. Um, but the relationships between the characters, which when I watch a show, that's that's the show for me, for the most part. Yes. Like, action and stuff that's that's all kind of ancillary to what's the emotional core for me so um yeah. uh but james how about you yeah so it's interesting i think even though the drama of the episode probably didn't reach the heights that episode six did there was still a lot of of shocking revelation here and so if i had to pick one word i, I, I might actually say shocking but i did also want to if i can use a phrase i did want to say missing is not dead because I think there's a there's a couple ah. of ways, <laughs> there's a couple of ways in which uh, that's relevant to uh, to to episode seven that I'm sure we're going to get into. Uh huh. Yeah, we will definitely get into those. Those are on my list. Um, so one thing we usually we don't talk about the title in this stream because, well, the show does a good job of creating a title for each episode that is very very on the nose and it's very clear why they named it what they named it. You know, the episode the wave starts out with a big yeah. wave like there's no mystery about what it means and when i saw the title card reveal the eye i thought okay i meet my mind immediately went to the eye of sauron i thought okay there's going to be a big reveal about sauron's identity or 
whether or not we know who Sauron is, there's going to be activities related to Sauron. Some big reveal related to Sauron is going to occur. That didn't really happen. Go ahead. I was just going to say, in every episode, they've used a title that makes us think we know exactly what it's going to be about. And mm. I don't think it generally is. So, for example, the, the episode Adar, right, didn't yeah. feature Adar much at all, but it has a, had a lot of fa fatherly relationships. That was the episode where we really got some wonderful scenes about fathers. Um, and so I think they're doing that a lot. And in this case, right, we all immediately jump to this idea at the eye. It's clearly talking about Sauron. Maybe this is the episode where we're going to get the Sauron reveal. No, but it's still, we, we get that opening scene with, with Galadriel's eye. Um, and of course, we get what happens to Muriel. So I think they're playing with this with us a lot in that regard. They're giving us names that we immediately think, oh, it's clearly going to be about A. And they're like, no, it's actually going to be about B. We're still going to, there's still going to be some essence of the episode that's about that title, but not necessarily what we initially expect. Well, and what is the connection to the eye in this episode? It's a little more obtuse to me. Yeah, well, I think Muriel, Muriel's blindness uh -huh. um, is the main thing that that's, that's a reference to. Yeah, um, okay. And you know, there's the visual, the visual tie-in with with uh, Galadriel waking up and that that whole amazing scene at the at the start, um, just dealing with the the result of the uh, the, the volcano explosion. Um, but I, I I think that's a, that's a reference mostly to to, to Muriel. Um, perhaps also, um, I don't know if we want to get into it yet, but this shift in in galadriel seeing things that she may not have seen mm. before um mm. this is a really interesting episode for for galadriel's arc yeah there's uh two kind of more obvious um symbols of the eye uh the cultists seem to have the symbol of the yeah. eye on one of their yeah. artifacts and uh somebody pointed out i don't i actually haven't managed to see it for the second time uh so i cannot confirm for sure uh but uh, the hole in the wall that duran you, you know bumps through uh, it kind of felt like it. i mean you can kind of maybe look at it as an eye looking into the press of casa doom but i don't know how like does it really really like that because i read that after the episode i haven't seen it again but i'd just add those two mm. But I also, they did mention that the, what one kind of a disappointment for me was that they did mention that they, we would, the evil would be revealed. It kind yeah, of was, yeah. like we saw, you know, the Balrog, we, I guess Mordor was revealed in some way. Uh, we saw the, the three, the three, three ladies from the East uh, for the first time interact with people. So in that sense, they were revealed, but as, as James said, you know, we, we were thinking, okay, now is the time. Now we're going to see Sauron or, you know, now we're going to see at least something huge that points towards Sauron. But no, we saw something else. Just one of many times that the show is kind of misdirecting us, right? They're really yeah. doing that as often as they can, which is, is, is fun to some people. <laughs> yeah. Some people don't love it so much. Um, actually, we have a question here in the chat. It's a little bit of a left turn, but... Um, uh, James, you talked a bit about this in the last episode of Rings Wrap Up. So it says, can you guys break down what the intro cinematic means? Because I can't make any point of it besides the two trees, but the shifting color dirt, what's that about? Uh, so I know That's you have a, a good explanation about that. Um, so if you wouldn't mind 
Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think the whole opening sequence is an allusion to the the Aino Lindale, the music of the Aino, and this whole sense that the world Ardo was created through music, through sound, through vibration. I think that's sort of the 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 overall idea of that opening sequence. And so, I think they're depicting various elements of of the the universe um, through the grains of sand. And I think what they're doing with that, when the, the sort of darker colored sand uh, snakes its way through i th- that's i think both a, a reference to the discord of melkor in the original Ainulindale, um but also just sort of sauron it's it's evil coming into the world and and changing in changing the plans i think is is what's going on specifically with that darker colored sand that snakes its way in yeah i i've come to really appreciate the the intro um, that little clip. I mean, it's a little bit, uh, you know, there's not a lot of color, vibrant colors. There's not, it didn't strike me as being very right. impressive the first time I watched it, but I appreciate this uh, symbology that's going on there. Um, so intellectually as a Tolkien fan, I really like it. Um, even if to the average person, maybe it doesn't seem that uh, radical or enjoyable or interesting. I think it is. There, there's a, a hidden layer there. Actually, um, uh, if I, if, if I can just for a second. So uh, there was actually a tweet a few weeks ago. Um, some person on Twitter, it's been a while, so I cannot recall who it was. But they uh, said that this was, this is actually some kind of, some kind of like an actual yes. real-life technique that you put these grains of sand on yep. like some surface, and then with music, you can actually move it and do things with it. Yes, uh, I, I was just... Crazy. Yeah. And this is, uh, this, is, this is one of the best... So, so this show has a lot of, you know, disappointing things that they did, but some of the things they did were are absolutely, absolutely amazing. And for me, this the intro and the whole approach to the intro and everything. I mean, James just said it like it's the yeah. direct <laughs> analogy actually, to how the world is created. It's perfect. I was actually just earlier today, by completely by coincidence, talking about it with uh, Monovarantis, who is doing an analysis on the music of the title of the of the intro and uh we dug up uh you know how they did it and it's done by causing the surface to vibrate with opera music gregorian chants and musical instruments like ocarina still triangle and guitars so that's what's causing the vibrations that are making the effect you know i'm more taken with the music personally than the visuals but yeah was there anything on how they cause the grains of sand to form certain yeah, images? Yeah, by, by, by means of oh, I'm sure Ma- some of magnets? it was. Is there like magnets? I'm, I'm sure some of the some of it was a, uh, yeah. digitally, you know, like yeah. It's a combination of it's a combination of the actual effect of sending vibrations through a metal plate with grains of sand on it, and and uh, computer graphics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, well, we're still getting sort of war- warmed up here before we get into the episode proper. Um, one thing that I've enjoyed asking everyone this week is what their favorite and least favorite lines from the episode is. And I've been calling this pros and no-nos. And so obviously the the beauty of Tolkien's writing, and I think something that we all love about his writing is it's not just the massive scope of the world or the depth of the history or the themes, although all those things are aspects of his writing that I love, but it's also his actual writing, the prose, sometimes poetry that he uses to explore all of that. Um, and the rings of power, show I, th- I think for me that's one of the things that i've been watching most ardently is to you know 
get immersed in the, the language. And the show has been a little bit uneven, but sometimes it's very, very good. There are moments that are fantastic and there are moments that are not so fantastic um, that strike me as a little bit anachronistic. And so I, I like to ask everybody in each episode, uh, were, was there any line or lines that just jumped out at you as just very Tolkienian that, that really felt right to you? And of course, if there's anything that felt really wrong to you, um, let's hear that as well. So um, why don't we start with uh, Han on this one? Ah, starting with the drunk person first. That's a good call. <laughs> um, no, I mean, there's a lot of lines. Like, I'm struggling to think of a specific one. Like, there's a lot of, not so much lines that sound un-Tolkienian so much as lines that are trying too hard to be Tolkienian, I guess. A lot of the elven dialogue is like that, where it would be very old-timey. Um, and and also, I was just reading this earlier today, found it absolutely hilarious. Uh, this tendency, which is also apparent in this episode, to have the dialogue in scenes with old ones telling stories. So in this episode, Galadriel would be, oh, when I was your age, there was no such thing as orcs. Never mind that that's not consistent with something that was said in previous episodes, where she was told stories as a girl about orcs and orcs. But beyond that, it's just someone made the example in response to the Guardian. Oh, Galadriel, what would you like for dinner? And then, and then, like she supposedly answered, "It was in the first, you know, age that it was told that you know those sorts of things are like, eh, not my favorite kind of thing in general, just conceptually, just telling stories and name dropping things that." Irks me a little. Like the way that they set up, you know, Theo asking Bronwyn, what was the thing that you used to tell me when I was upset? It was like yes, they had yes. to package that into a story to bring that line in. Yes, yes, that's a very good example. But also examples in this episode, I'm sure we'll get to one. James has mentioned it already. Just That's just one example, but there are many. Uh, as for something that is Tolkienian, well, there are lines that are straight out of, out of Tolkien's pros i mean they have it to their disposal they may as well use it so galadriel describes her and Kellerborn's meeting with a description that is directly from the meeting of luthien and baron but there's a lot of stuff like that uh so yeah it's that's that's sort of, like when they're actually perhaps the most tolkienian would actually be a kind of pastiche of tolkien would be the poem the wandering day that was very nice poetry uh and very tolkien like uh so yeah nice harry how about you what's your favorite line um as to favorite lines i would say um is i don't know exactly word for word what it, the line was it was a lot of the i think about that whole period of when galadriel was talking to theo under i think under the branch and speaking to him about you know it's not your fault and going on about that and how it's her own then spoke about how darkness works and then it kind of links back to that finrod um thing that she told her so that whole area as for lines again i don't know the exact lines that was said but um, that whole light turn on i'm sorry <laughs> that whole area yeah that whole bit of lines were good yeah, and well, that was one of my favorite lines. I'll go ahead and read it because I have it prepared here, and I bet it's part of what you enjoyed. Um, when she, when Theo asks her, how many orcs have you killed? And she says, many. And he says, good. And she says, I would not use such words. And he says, why not? It darkens the heart to call dark deeds good. It gives place for evil to thrive inside us. Every war is fought both without and within. 
Of that, every soldier must be mindful. Even I, even you. That whole exchange I thought yeah, was that one. great. That's the one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And not just because it, it's a very, it feels Tolkienian to me. It's also, she's talking to him, but she's also talking to herself as yeah. she was I mean, basically that, in that entire scene. That that to me was the the first real mark of the of the character arc shift that we're seeing in Galadriel because that's not the Galadriel we saw in episode six. If you compare no. that conversation with Theo to the conversation she had with Adar, she's already changing, right? Her her, her response to the the volcano has been a big shift already in her attitude towards how we deal with the orcs and 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 darkness and 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 so on. Yeah, so it was a remarkable conversation with with Theo. For more than one reason, but but that reason certainly. And James, would that conversation kind of be up there for you for favorite lines, or, or did you have anything and, else? And, and yeah, I mean, certainly that conversation. Um, I mean, also any any time that Durin and Elrond are speaking to one another. Um, but when Galadriel, I mean, the other, of course, aspect with with Galadriel talking to Theo, we did get the the retelling of the the Baron and Luthien meet cute, which I was disappointed in because I felt the reuse of that was cheapened it i i yes i, I guess that, yeah. yeah it was sort of disappointing that they felt the need to to reuse that in that context absolutely thrilled that that has been mentioned so in in Kelleborn was probably my favorite word in the whole episode because just to hear his name mentioned was was a, a wonderful delight um completely answering all the critics who said they're getting the law totally wrong she should be married to Kelleborn by now well guess what she is um and uh but also i mean the other the other moment that i loved coming back to elrond and and durin was something that wasn't said which was uh durin's real name the fact that he was just about to tell elrond his real name and elrond said don't do it um yeah yeah uh, that was that was a even though his real name is supposed to also be durin durin is kuzdor (laughs) <laughs> well, that doesn't necessarily the fact that he's that Durin is Kuzdul doesn't necessarily mean that it's his secret name. But yeah. Um Yeah. Yeah, they said it in an interview what it should have been or something, or alluded to or were about to and then stopped halfway. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, apparently it's supposed to be a Kelad Thug, which should mean a glass beard, probably, apparently. Yep. So that's an interesting choice. So it's been revealed what Prince Durin's real they, name is. How do they know? Kind of like like it was there. There was like like an interview with the showrunners, and apparently they they stopped halfway through. But somebody did like I guess the interviewer did catch it's Kalat Tug, Tug, or Tug I guess P U G, uh, and it's supposed to mean glass beard. Yeah, I'm not. A lot of things have been cut. I don't know why they've cut so much. To be you honest. have to cut. I mean, you always know, cut. When you're like waiting. that scene between Farazon and Galadriel, that dinner time that also builds relationship of Kamen and Iari, and that got cut. There's been mm. a few more stuff that we know. It's just yeah. interesting to see what they do to, to the chopping block and how if that would have worked out. They did even say in an interview that some of the smaller scenes did not work as well. So it's like compensating for that. So I hope in season two they do. You know, maybe something's a cut scene. Something's never work. That's what yeah. works. Yeah, so. you always you always have to cut. Always, no matter but how well. It, you it, and unfortunately, that would be a it, nice thing. yeah. Often it means though that later scenes that build on the cut scenes no longer have the impact that they should have had. And a good That's example true. of that, Harry. Harry, you mentioned the dinner scene between yeah. Ayarian and 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 Kemen <laughs> being one of the things that was was yeah. cut out. And I think that weakened 
the later scene with 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 Kemen basically being willing to sub to sabotage the boat. I actually, yeah. Um, Sorry, yeah. go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, no, no. I was going to say, I think, I think that would have been a stronger. Uh, it would have seemed a stronger motivation to us had we seen more scenes between Aari and and, and Kemen. And that scene would have also gone into more about Farazon because I think in that episode when we see him pick up the bucket and when Aarian spills it over and she says, okay, for dinner, okay, you have to pay for dinner, then that next scene would have been that dinner yes. scene. And also yes. that in that same scene, Farazon and Galadriel, they get into a fight, not fight, but shouting, or, I mean, find the whole Numenorean court while they're having dinner. So mm. that would it would have built on that as well. So, but again, I understand. Maybe no knowing the name, there's a decision they made last minute. But yeah, it's a noticeable thing about this, at least, because Ramsey Avery even said this show was meant to be ten episodes originally. Yeah, I think that was wow. in the scripting phase, though, and it got shrunk in the scripting phase. But yeah, yeah they have to it, cut it, stuff it's, off. It's, yeah, you always have to cut stuff off. The thing here is that uh, you feel that things are missing. You know, most of the time, every movie and every show has things cut off, but normally you don't feel that things are missing. Whereas here, you you do sometimes a little bit. You cut things that are inessential. At least that's the idea. Not things that feel like they should be an essential uh, stepping stone in a plot, right? So where yeah, you take I mean, it out, when you when missing. you script things, you always in your mind think that they're essential. And then <laughs> looking at it in the edit, no, it's just the nature of yeah. things. Uh, looking at it at the edit, you some you always find something to cut. Always. Well, Strider, did you have a favorite line? Uh, yeah. So. As usual, I'm I'm the I'm a huge fan of Stranger and everything he's doing. So him whispering to the tree was really nice. I really felt that, and I absolutely love what uh, Mr. Wayman is doing with that character. But if I had to choose like a, a line or two, it would be that uh, Durin and Elrond saying goodbye. Um, Durin asking him to stay for the dinner, and then uh, Elrond is saying that he has to go, and then. And Dory says goodbye, but then Elrond says, no, we say Namari, and then he explains the meaning. I think that was... They're consistently always great. And Durin stole the show in this in this specific scene. So, yeah, I think that was, for me, very moving. I absolutely love that. And yeah, for the things I did... Yeah, just a quick one. For the things that did, I didn't like, I wasn't sure about Ellen. I understand the motivation all that, but I wasn't sure about... Um, Ellen deals, I shouldn't have uh, taken the elf out from the sea or whatever he said. I, I wasn't really that. close by that, but this good part was absolutely amazing. Hen, what did you have to say about that? Yeah, I, I, I understand, you know, Ellen deal being like really, really grief stricken and being like, oh, I shouldn't have brought the elf on board. You know, I get that. Uh, to me, that's very But the sea is always right. <laughs> well let's go ahead and pick up with the start of the actual episode and uh, i've already seen several people in the chat asking us to address how in the world all of our main characters and all the side characters and how do people survive the pyroclastic flow the eruption of mount doom um and i'm just gonna say that they can't and that we just gotta deal with it and kind of get over it uh to enjoy the episode yeah, that happens. you just gotta you just gotta deal with it that's that's my own yeah answer. yeah that that sort of thing happens in in action kind of movies and like all the time. think of it like in the Lord of the Rings. How did when um in the movies when 
Oh, it's got Frodo, Gimli, and, and Aragorn. They come and with the army of the dead. How are there three ships sailing itself, you know, with no army? It's like there's technical things. In that, even that's more of a technicality. I cannot understand why some people, you know, some people don't even want us to say the line pyroclastic flow anymore. So I think that's just it is yeah. it's like the word chill is just yeah. gone, you know. Out of Harry, you, Harry, you just you just ruined a part yeah. of the movie for me. I never thought of that. <laughs> How were they controlling the ships when there's like that three actual yeah. cube, like that beings there? Thank you so much for this. Yeah. <laughs> the the mechanics of the plot are so secondary to you know what it facilitates in terms of like it's like you can find that in every story you say that but then we're gonna get angry in a second about halbrand riding across you know yeah well unless he's not mortal but we'll come to it yeah, <laughs> well, yeah exactly. true. True. but we'll you know one of the things that i of course enjoy i, I don't want to totally write off people's concerns about the unbelievability of them surviving the volcano erupting because one of the things i love about tolkien is how much effort and time it put into making everything believable the detail make it feel real of course it doesn't it, he said in his letters like you know this and that don't exactly align with the mechanics of the real world uh, i think i don't remember the number of the letter but there's a letter where he's responding to someone he's like you're taking this a little too literally too seriously you need to chill out like in my world the mechanics work based on the rules of my world it doesn't have to match the real world um and so I, th I think we kind of just have to try and embrace that i know it's hard because um if you have to do that too many times it's too much yes. work for the viewer you want to be immersed and it takes you out of it when things are so gobsmackingly obviously unrealistic that that, that it takes you out of it um but you know for this i just think we don't see it first of all you know the the last episode ends and then they wake up so we can just kind of roll with where they pick up and i think if you do that this first scene is really, really powerful. It's, you know, it's a post-apocalyptic scene in terms of the monochromatic coloring, um, the dust everywhere, the the people sort of wandering around aimlessly. I thought it was a really powerful scene. So I, I really want to hear how you guys felt this scene worked in terms of the chaos and the way it was shot. Uh, James, let's start with you. Yeah, I mean, just the the disorienting effect, the way that, it, you know, it, we, it kind of started off, we couldn't hear anything, we felt disoriented, and then... Piece by piece, we saw more. We saw one person, or or a burning horse, or 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 you yes. know another person emerge, and so on. As as Galadriel was was almost realizing the uh, the extent of what had happened, more and more pieces come together. And I think that's my understanding is that's often what happens in these kind of uh, traumatic situations. That initially. You, you, you kind of have this tunnel vision and then gradually things start to come into focus again and you realize what's going on. So I thought they portrayed that wonderfully. I loved just how monochromatic this is, given how the, the breadth of colors we've seen before in the mm -hmm. palette, the cinematography has been really, uh, I think, amazing in that regard, just how broad the color range has been. And so now to have this scene that's so monochromatic, uh, it really brings us into um you know, just the the almost claustrophobic um kind of feeling that it that it must have been like with uh with that the ash and, and the cloud and everything uh i thought it was really well done the camera angles it was this wonderful disorient well, wonderful <laughs> uh very well done uh disorienting effect um which i th thought worked really well and in this scene we see a lot of we get just brief it's very brief but we see muriel 
jumping into the fray, saving somebody. We see uh, a close character on Tamo die. We see Isildur, you know, is confronted yeah. with the death of his friend. He saves his other friend. Um, it's a very brief scene, but I think a lot is happening. To, it kicks the episode off on a very chaotic note and sets a lot of characters kind of on a path um, and, and tells mm-hmm. you kind of what's going on with them. And then it cuts away and we cut to Gladriel and Theo. So I thought that it was very effective. Yeah. I thought it was nice seeing, I mean, it sets up Muriel as being somebody that's willing to, to risk her own life. She's hands on. She's, she wasn't sort of standing back. Uh, you know, she was willing to go into, um, you know, buildings and stuff to save people. I thought that was a nice, nice little character, um, sort of character building to, to see there. Now, this is something that just kind of came to me and it bothered me a little bit at the time, not bothered me as in like it's inconsistent with lore or anything, but um, in American films, at least there's this huge value behind the idea of like, you don't leave the fallen dead behind, right? <laughs> if someone dies, you carry them out of battle. So we have all these heroic moments in war movies where people are like, you know, carrying their brethren out, even if, and then even if they're dead, you're carrying them out. Um, and that is not what happens in this scene. You know, once it's revealed yes. that Antamo dies, Isildur tries to go back in, and Muriel says, you know, leave him, he's dead. And, and which is obviously very pragmatic, you know, don't risk your own life to, to save a corpse. Um, but also there's a, you know, there's a value judgment there that uh, is inconsistent with my very modern tastes. But I wonder if there's anything, and I have, have no answer on this, and I'm curious, James, or anybody else on the panel, if you have thoughts about it, how that might jive with you know Numenorean values or beliefs about death. Um, you know, they do it in the two towers. Theoden says after the war attack, leave the dead. It's done in a kind of outrage kind of thing, but still, it's very much there. So hmm. you know, yeah. I mean, it's an interesting cultural distinction generally in the in the primary world about the sort of importance of burying the dead and so on, and giving people a proper burial and and so on. I think it can vary culturally i don't i don't know if they were going for something specific with the numenorians and it's unclear of course where we we are at in the numenorian obsession with with death of, of course in the, in in the books you know the numenorians go through this stage where they become increasingly obsessed with uh with the dead and and with t- building tombs and so on so i mean it's possible that this was a, a deliberate attempt to convey that they're not there yet that they're not uh, they don't have that obsession um uh yet as well so yeah it'll be interesting to see if that's ever built on i hadn't noticed that at the time but it, it could be something that they they do develop uh, this changing attitude uh, towards death amongst the numenorians right well we go, uh, let's stick with the Southlanders and the Galadriel plot line. And I kind of want to, we already touched on it a little bit, but the scenes with Galadriel and Theo, I think for everybody marked, it felt like it marked a turning point for Galadriel. I mean, at, at the end of the last episode, also the way that she sort of almost was resigned to her fate. She saw the oncoming uh, volcanic flow and it looked like she was just ready to go she's like I'm going to die and she closed her eyes in resignation but then she wakes up and sees the chaos and now she's dealing with it and we get kind of a very different Galadriel and in part because she has to take this young person under her wing and protect him and so in the course of their conversations she's giving him all the wisdom that we had been wanting to hear from Galadriel through six episodes you know where is the Galadriel who's in the third age where is this wise elf because all we've gotten is kind of a rage machine and I'm not against this approach to the character. I think it's very interesting, but it has felt kind of a little bit one note to some people. 
you know, where's the, the, the kernel, that seed of wisdom that will blossom into third age Galadriel. We haven't seen it, but here we do. And lots of great lines between her and Theo. Um, and again, I'll just say it feels like she's talking to Theo, but she's also reminding herself of all these things and sort of counseling herself to accept the will of the Valar there. There's a great line about, um, um, there are powers other than evil in this world and we just have to uh, trust to their designs and abandon our own in, in times like this. And we also get some great moments that touch on uh, hope and despair where Theo is really hopeless. Um, his, his world has been destroyed. His home is gone. And he kind of spits back at her like, you know, where's the design in my home being destroyed? And she says, I don't know. So he's kind of despairing and she's telling him you need to, you know, they don't use the phrase. But this is Estelle hope. This is, you know, we don't know where the we don't I don't have a reason for you to hope other than you just need to. Um, and so I liked that, that was all baked into this otherwise very natural dialogue between these two characters. Um, so just open form. James, what did you think of these these scenes? Yeah, I mean, as we've we've already touched on this, this really I think marks the start of the shift towards the the wiser Galadriel that that uh, that we know from the Third Age. It's interesting that this was sort of the event that that kicked it off. Although it's it's interesting, it could partly have been her conversation with Adar, reflection on her conversation with Adar, that also made her think about some of these things. But but certainly this realization that in some senses she was responsible um for for things that happened and the destruction that, that just happened that she's really starting to to reassess a lot of things um you know of course we also in this conversation get the uh, revelation that uh, that her, she's married let's let's, let's <laughs> save that let's save that let's save that, uh, we'll save that yeah but certainly well, in terms of there's a lot to say there yeah so yeah, yeah. but in terms of the character arc i mean i know some people in the in the channel are saying suggesting even the changes happen too quick. I think there's still a lot more <laughs> for Galadriel to go through um, to develop the wisdom that she has in the, in the, in the third age. But I think this is an interesting uh, starting point. I think we're definitely seeing the beginning of her, um, especially just the extent to which she said stuff to Theo that she probably needed to be told to herself in the, in the previous episode. And as you say, she wasn't just speaking to Theo in many regards. She was, she was really talking to herself. Yeah. And uh, a great question by RS Aurelian in the chat. What is Galadriel transforming into? And the answer is Sauron. The answer to every question is Sauron. <laughs> no, come on people. I mean, it's uh, obvious what the answer is. It's clear that Beric is Sauron. Come on. True. True. Strider. How about you? On this one, well, I I really liked the moment where she gives her sword to to Theo, and it kind of goes back to what Elrond told her in the first episode or the second, I think, right. the first episode. I think that was a really cool mo moment of her giving the sword, and in the, it's also in this whole scene and like this whole, or was it like a couple of scenes? But what you just talked about the her conversation, the wisdom she's finally showing and giving to Theo, um, you know. I, I really liked the pairing because it brings out things in both of them that they are usually far away from. Like she's thousands of years old and here's this kid who is like 30, 40 years old. And 14. he is showing signs of perhaps going on the dark path. And she recognizes that due to everything she's seen, but most importantly due to the road that she has taken and also based on her conversation with Adar, which was fantastic that line about perhaps you should have looked uh, uh, for, for, for Margaret's successor and perhaps that search should have ended in a mirror. That was 
absolutely amazing. And for her to give this sword to Theo, and there's also like there's a lot the symbolism for both of them. She's uh, putting away the sword. That's important for her, but she's also giving this sword, which is like uh, you know, light, light side sword, uh, to Theo, who was the whole season being connected with this evil sword, getting addicted to it, uh, doing like the blood sacrifice, activation, whatever. Uh, so he was connected with this dark, and now he is leaning towards the light. And she's pulling them towards the light and also pulling herself. So I, I'm actually very happy. This is finally, as you, as you guys said, like this is finally the Galadriel we wanted to see and that we need to see. And also this is just pro- probably just the start of her, of her character arc. And there's a really nice still from the next uh, episode where she's like, I think, hugging Elrond. I cannot remember specifically, but it, it was a really nice scene. You can see, I think she seems to be very emotional there. And she didn't show a lot of emotions besides anger and passion and something like that not a lot of other emotions so i think we're going to see other sides of her more concretely more forefront uh from now on so i I overall very much like this yeah they're very interesting that the way or one of the ways that she inspires theo and what sets him on this new path is she gives him a sword. She says, you're now a soldier. I, I thought that was interesting. Uh, I'm not sure what to make of it. It actually felt a little bit odd to me, but um, he is certainly, you know, we see over the course of the episode, he embraces that I am now a soldier. And I think we're going to see him kind of, um, it's kind of his coming of age moment. I think mm. him receiving this sword and I am now a soldier. I'm a protector. Exactly what that becomes. I don't know, but I think it, this is a bit of a quietly a turning point for Theo. Harry, what did you think about it? Um, I think <clears throat> it's quite um, telling. I think you mentioned it, coming of age, whereby it'd be interesting to see what that exchange is. So p- particular that is Theo and Galadriel, light. Look at that. Um, is those two together? Because I feel like maybe this will this result in him being you know good or will he go down the evil path and i think that in like two three seasons time when you look back at um this scene it's almost like as a moment like what actually happened here and could galadriel have made him better because he did say some really nice things but even still when the orcs came he got out his sword and was still ready to go come so he still has that urge in him the internal drive, and I think, despite him probably calming him down for a bit, it still shows that there is still something in him. So and that is what I really liked about that. And also for the people in Charles who are seated and having marans, they stop. <laughs> you have to find out until the next episode. Yeah, what are those? Yeah, what are those? Marans, nice sweets for the neck. I need them. Oh, good. So oh, they good. sound like a heavy smoker. There has been a lot of speculation that Theo may become a Nazgul. So if he does, yeah. right, we'll look back on all these scenes and exactly. you know they'll have a kind of a different meaning to them. Ken, how about you? Uh, about Theo, yeah, I used to think that there's no way that Theo would be a Nazgul because he, I didn't think, in a sense, I still don't, that they would want to, like, Theo's going to age presumably naturally across the season. So he's 14 in this, 
he'll be I don't know seventeen in the next one. So it's it's he gonna grows be, quite know. quickly. I know you're playing yeah, but you know, you know what I mean. He's not gonna turn thirty five. I remember, so. yeah, but within seasons, Lost Kingdom did it, whereby they're able to. Stride, you can back me up on this. Come on, you know. The king, I think, forgot his name, but within a few seasons, he has a beard and everything. And yeah, yeah, look, but he's not, he's uh, not Edward, gonna I think. be, Edward, yeah, he's not, he's seasons, not even gonna be 26, you know what I mean? Okay, but when's the next season in two years? There's two years before yeah, thinking and filming beginning now, and he's already the cast. Nazni Bunyadi said at the beginning, he, he was shorter than her, what? now he's much taller, so I think that is a possibility. We shouldn't be ruling it out, is what I'd say. Yes, him. I agree. We shouldn't be ruling it out. I just uh, because because of what I saw in this episode, we shouldn't be ruling it out. But yeah, it's weird, peculiar. We'll see. So let's get to the little lore nugget. Not as lot, not as many lore nuggets in this episode as in prior episodes, but the one that ever has everyone's tongues wagging and heads buzzing is the name drop of Celeborn. Um, James, as you already mentioned, people have been kind of. This has been a sore point for a lot of Tolkien fans. How could Galadriel be unmarried? Where is Celeborn? Um, and that was sort of the number one. That was exhibit A for the argument that Amazon doesn't know what they're doing. Uh, it turns out that they do have a plan for Celeborn. She was, in fact, married to him in the First Age. And the explanation is that he went off to war in the First Age, which she counseled against. And she never saw him again. And so she doesn't say he's dead or that I saw him die, just that I never saw him again, which I think clearly she believes that he's dead. That was certainly just the um, the way it was delivered. It seems like emotionally she believes he's gone, but uh, we have no confirmation as viewers. And I think as Tolkien readers, we can we can be pretty certain that he's not dead. Right. There's just no yeah. way at, at a very meta level. I think it was reported that was one of Christopher Tolkien's. Yes, like one conditions is you don't change who's who's dead when or who's alive when really um, <clears throat> in the timeline. So they're not killing off Celeborn. So I think he's alive. We'll probably have um, a reunification plot line in the future, and I don't know how that'll play out. But this was a. Uh, it was also kind of blinking. You, you miss it. It was very very quick. Um, not a lot of time spent dwelling on it. So this is just laying the seeds for something that's going to happen later on. Uh, but what what were all of your thoughts about name dropping Celeborn here, James? Well, I mean, one of the things I liked about it was it was one of the few times we see Galadriel uh, smile as well. She actually <laughs> has, you know, she's had such an intense uh, intensity on her face and, and she actually, that breaks down a little bit as she's saying she, uh, and, and giving the story of how they met, which, you know, as I said before, I, I, I didn't, I didn't really like the fact they just reused the Baron and Luthien story because I, I felt that it cheapened it. But, but yeah, I mean, I think this is, there's an important lesson here, uh, which, and and we saw this actually really early on. Remember when um, the, one of uh, the fellow uh, elven soldiers tells Arondir that there's only been two unions of of elfin human before, and that was a nice response to the people that said the showrunners don't know what they're doing because this is a rare thing. No, the showrunners are quite aware of this bit of law and the same thing here. And so I think there's an important lesson that we shouldn't assume that because we haven't heard, we haven't seen someone or haven't uh, something hasn't been addressed yet. That doesn't mean that they haven't got a plan for it. Um, this was a good example of that, but it's interesting. You know, a lot of another thing that people have mentioned is, you know, why are we only finding out about this now? There's been mm. such an obsession she's had about Finrod and, and and revenge. But I, I, 
to me, that seems, depending on her level of, of sort of trauma around both of those incidents, um, I don't necessarily have a problem with that. She's not necessarily, it, it could be that in some senses she's taken on the revenge uh, track uh, with Finrod because she can't come to terms with the possibility that Celeborn is dead. This may be her way of dealing with um, the uncertainty of what's happened to, to Celeborn as well. We'll see. I mean, maybe maybe they'll they'll deal with this. Maybe they'll they'll explore more um, in future episodes. Exactly, you know, whether she went after him at any point, uh, what her sort of current feelings are about him. Um, I think it'll be interesting to see. I don't think we we can really say too much at this point until we they finally meet again. And on this point, yeah. Morveth Clark in an interview with uh, I think it was TV Line was asked about this very issue and she said that she loves that he wasn't mentioned until this point in the series because she said quote Celeborn being gone is just something that's almost completely compartmentalized yes. it's like she can't deal with that yeah. and I, I, I do like that idea and you know normally with characters uh, if we're not given their backstory up front it is revealed over time and that's part of uh, what is interesting for the viewer the reveals of their backstory kind of is, is part of their arc Um this is a little interesting because we were given a backstory up front that was sort of sets the stage. It's kind of a prologue and, and Caliborn wasn't mentioned, but I don't think that we should take the fact that there was a prologue, a backstory given up front to mean that there's nothing else that can be discovered about her past. Right. right. Uh, yeah. So I think Caliborn's part of that. So, and how about you? What are your thoughts? One thing, I think that the assumption, oh, the show, it's a, it's a tricky thing. The thing James mentioned, which is to say, oh, the showrunners, we should assume that they know better. I think that's a, tricky well we shouldn't assume that just walk yeah no, yeah no. we shouldn't assume they're incompetent or anything but at the same right. time to just to look at some of these writing things and assume oh the showrunners are better than that it will surely get explained in a later episode i think the opposite the immediate answer to that would be the mithril thing which we'll get to later which people built very elaborate theories about how it's actually a, a, a misdirect and yes, fair I enough. Mean, it, it still it could be. I'm still embracing. I compartmentalize that. All, all the episode, all the evidence in this episode point to it. Agreed. Being. Uh, Agreed. But but just that's just one thing. As for the Caliborn thing, to me, uh, a little bit. You know, it's a little weird. Oh, my husband is MIA for MIA for I don't know a millennia. She assumes he's dead. That's like it was pretty hokey. Like, may as well. We had a school that perhaps it's more likely that she would only meet Celeborn later on. But this, a little bit convoluted for my taste as a piece of backstory, especially, to speak to your point, as a piece of backstory introduced like a third or way into the seventh of eight episodes. So that's a tricky line to walk. To me, it was a bit weird <laughs> as a piece of backstory. Strider, how about you? And also, do you have any theories about where he's been all this time? Yeah, so first of all, I'm happy we got definitely got the mention of, of Caliban. That's great news. Uh, she had a really good comment. So Caleb means silver, and she had the she said that she uh, called him the silver clamp because the armor didn't fit. And that was a really cool, that was a really nice. A joke. piece of trivia about their relationship. I really love that moment. Um, I I read a theory on, on Reddit, and somebody went into way more details than I'm going to now. But 
when basically they were talking about when someone deals with trauma, how some people deal with that is that, and as Morphin said in somebody mentioned in the interview, uh, they compartmentalize that and just like leave it in like one room in their brain and just never go back there. Uh, so like you can compare Caliborn with Finrod. Uh, for Finrod, she, for one reason or another, she knows that Sauron is the, the cause of his downfall and she has the target for vengeance that she can focus on that. While on the other hand, Caliborn is missing. She, she doesn't have anyone to blame, but we know that um, whether they, they can incorporate that officially or not in the, in the show, but elves made for life, one or two exceptions aside. Um, so this must be awful. Like they, 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 once they connect with the person, they connect and to lose that person must be absolutely horrifying. And uh, it kind of makes sense. Like I could see this, you know, over 2000 years or two, three, you know, depending on the timeline, suffering without the person you love because you know what happened to them. Uh, and then I'll get to the second question. Um, but you have this quest at least to avenge your brother and you can focus on and so on. So I think her character arc is starting to make more sense, even though she was super antipathetic uh, in, in, the, in the, so super anti-sympathetic in the first uh, five-ish episodes, five, six episodes, I mean, six episodes. I'm, I'm very happy with what, have, what we got in this episode. And to answer the question, um, I guess, the, so I have two options. One is, the first one is that he is somehow somewhere captured, which is going to be very interesting if Celeborn was indeed captured somewhere in some dungeon for like the last, let's say, two, three thousand years. I mean, what does that do to an elf? That's absolutely crazy. We don't have a president for that. What happens if Celeborn... At least... Yeah, but I, I think she, she would have noticed that so far by, by now. But the other theory that got me very, very worried, uh, Matt from the Nerd, Nerd of the Rings proposed that, and I seriously, please do not <laughs> let this happen. What if um, Celeborn takes place of Glorfindel? He died, but th- he died doing something very noble, perhaps being the elf from that mithril myth. Um, and then he's coming back to Middle Earth instead of Glorfindel, who was, as we all, as we know, reincarnated due to his uh, outstanding life and feats in life and being heroic, and is sent back to Middle Earth as basically a member of kind of the like the Istari, the extended edition. Uh, so maybe Celeborn will take his place, which is a theory I do not like, especially because Glorfindel was cut out from the Bakshi cartoon where he was replaced by Legolas. And of course, as we know in the movies, he was replaced by Arwen. And while I do not mind those two characters doing those things, I want Glorfindel. So I'm hoping that's not the case. <laughs> Hopefully, uh, we'll see Glorfindel. And as for Caliborn, I think the most logical thing to assume, unless it's somehow this Glorfindel theory, he's probably captured somewhere. Like, I don't see what else could be because Galadriel spent, you know, you, you can, you can, if, if, if I was Caliborn and I was able to move around Middle Earth, I would go to Linden. Or, you know, Eregion. Like, you would know that there's the remnants of the Noldor and everyone in Linden, and you can go and find her. So, the fact that he didn't do that, something very bad happened. And the best guess is that he is somehow somewhere captured, like like imprisoned. 
Yeah, I, that's I my thoughts so far. I hope it's not like, you know, I hope it's not like a card that Sauron, when he does confront Galadriel, has on her like, oh, Galadriel, don't you want to meet Celeborn again? <laughs> I hope it's not that. But I really think it's just a conceit for, it was convenient for them to not have him there, therefore, at the time, therefore he is not there. I think that's what it is, really. That's all it comes down to. Maybe we have an amnesia plot line in our future. He got bonked on the head and he's been wandering around not knowing who he is. That, 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 Isn't that Meteor Man? That's, well, yeah, that's go. Meteor Man. <laughs> it's also Neonor. Uh, but yeah. Well, <laughs> Harry, I want to flip it to you and um, add one little layer to this. So the show has not confirmed you know, the way Elvish reincarnation works or you know, reincarnation is not exactly the right word, but serial longevity. Um so you know do their spirits go back to the halls of mandos and get rehoused at some point you know the show has not confirmed that that exists in the rings of power universe um but of course if it does as it does in the text um that adds another layer to her decision not to go to valinor because ostensibly she would know that Celeborn, if he is dead as she believes may be there in the halls of mandos or maybe he's already been rehoused and um she would have an opportunity to see him again making that choice that much more significant um and, you know, Strider mentioned, sort of brought up this topic when he suggested the, the Nerd of the Rings theory that, well, maybe Celeborn gets, you know, reincarnated and sent back to Middle-earth, taking the place of Glorfindel. So we're kind of in that, the Elvish reincarnation zone. So what did you think of, of Celeborn in general? And um, do you think that the Elvish reincarnation is going to be brought up at some point in the future? Well, um, first off, um, my theory is that Celeborn is at the... Um, Elf Lords only meeting, which is probably, I think, a really start of episode when I really do think. I know not a lot of people talk about it, but I think that is quite an important thing that we will get called back onto maybe even season two, where once we have Kurdan, I will say Kurdan, they will maybe show a flashback or something or mention that scene because it's really, I think it's a really vital thing that Elrond was not allowed to be permitted to that meeting. And I think even, um, and of course, you know, Galadriel isn't there. And, and of course it doesn't work out with, okay, Celeborn is alive and now he's a lord. How do you not know about Galadriel? That's the only little stumbling block, unless this is his return somehow. But I do, and he they weren't able to meet in time because Galadriel got sent west. But I do think that, that in episode one, when we heard about an elf lord's meeting with elf lords only, I think in season two, or at uh, some point, we'll get at least either a reference to that meeting or what was decided there. Because originally, I was thinking maybe in season two, we find out that, you know, Anatar was at that meeting potentially if he was already in a regular, which I don't think this is the case anymore, unfortunately. Maybe have Kerr down there, which is he was canonically in season one, but he was at that meeting. I would meet him in season two. And maybe that also works for Celeborn as well. Voice <clears throat> mm. going. Um, so I think that is how I potentially, even if. Um, if that is not the case in Celebrations, and there, I do think that area from that first step to so that little point is important, and it could potentially maybe Celebrations being there. And in regards to the reincarn, well, sorry for that. In regards to the um, reincarnation theory, it, it does add that extra layer to her decision. And this all adds to. I'm not sure if it was said in the episode whether or not Gladwell knew where he had died, because if he knew he had died. It still adds to the fact that there was a chance he could have been there and she still did not. But then it's like, do you want to go back to your husband or do you want to 
avenge your brother type thing. Maybe that was a dilemma that was in her head. And I think it is, it's quite an evil dilemma. If, of course, that is the law that's worked with here in this show. So I I think it could work and it aligns nicely with the, you know, that if he is the warrior Hithelge fighting the Barok, because then, you know, of course, we don't want to with Glorfindel. Of course, you'll want to see Glorfindel. So I think he works, but I also think as a possibility with Celebon, that's another route. So maybe he was at that meeting. Can can I add one other uh, potential Easter egg with regard to Celeborn's location? Yeah, please. please. Um, so one of the things that was interesting when the sea monster uh, was was shown was the realization that there's a sea monster in the original maps that that Amazon released in in 2019, and it made me wonder whether there are there are details in those original maps that we should be paying more attention to. They clearly mm. spent a, a lot of time making sure the names of places and the particular places that were mentioned um, are of significance. So for example, all the places where uh, the seven Palantiri end up are all on the, on the, um, on the Amazon maps. But I just want to point out that the Amazon maps have three islands off the coast of Linden. They have Tolmorun, they have Tol uh, um, uh, Fuin and, uh, and Tol Himling. And I, I can't help but wonder if there's some. Why would they have chosen <laughs> to go to the trouble of including those islands in this map and na- and labeling them, unless there's something that we're going to find out happened or is happening on those islands? So I, I I'm and, not sure, but I want to throw that out. <laughs> and no, no, I, I that's a good idea. And to add to that, if you see the map, the geography, look how close all three of those islands are to Linden. If there was going yes. to be an Elf Lord's only meeting, it may be Kelbun somehow an Elf Lord. They're all from there and he's becoming a Lord again in Middle-earth because his return, if either one of the two, it works out with having, you know, Mithlon. I'm not sure. Actually, I don't guess it was... They have made basically made Linden a city, haven't they, I think. So I do think the Grey Havens, Mithlon is going to be separate to their... Um, to the Linden, uh, to the Linden city that they've now instead of it being a kingdom. But... I think yeah, I think that mine and James's series I think what potentially may coincide in that regard. Yeah, I would say that uh, while I do like the theory that Calibor was present on on the meeting, I don't think it fits that well unless he somehow came back to Linden and connected with all the elf lords there just after Galadriel left because that's <laughs> that's suspicious yeah. on his I, part. I think Galadriel, yeah. But I think what James said, I, it would be. I don't know how they would get him, but I, it would be very interesting if he, you know, survived the War of Wrath on one of these islands, you know. That would be a very interesting way to, to go about it. Um, I, I, I would definitely like that way more than him replacing Lorfindel. But I don't know. The only question I would pose there is then how would they get him? But still, I would love that if he somehow survived there or something like that. Well, if, you know, if, Gal- if Galadriel yeah. thinks thinks she can swim from Valinor, <laughs> then surely Celeborn can swim from Tolmorwen. You got me there. You got me there. <laughs> I, I don't actually know if, if there's much merit to it, but I, I just can't help but think that places that we that are they bothered to put on the map inexplicably. Um, uh, are worth considering whenever we're wondering where could somebody be. I wonder, uh, 
sorry, yeah. just just a quick one. Sorry. Uh, so uh, they also put on one of the maps they put Lothlorien. I think the name it was the version of Lorinand. So yes. he could be there for whatever reason. I mean, it, it's still weird that he wouldn't be go look for her mistaken. because Galadriel didn't, you know, like the the main Noldor elves, like the main elves from from the first age, did not move. Like they're still there at what's remnants of Beleriand. So it's weird that he wouldn't go look for her, but maybe he was he is in Lorena. That would I mean I, I think we'll definitely see this. Yeah. Uh, I, I also, for his I also kingdom wonder soon. If, so yeah. I I also wonder if they're gonna set up uh, when we find out where he's been, whether that's going to give us an explanation for his dislike of dwarves as well. I'm wondering if dwarves right. are somehow involved in in his still being missing. He was from Doriath, and they did have some problems with dwarves, if I recall. Yeah, so that's an interesting so, thing you bring uh, up. That, that uh, yeah, 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 just just a little bit. Um, yeah, it was interesting. They confirmed in the in the Amazon X-ray the that he's the particular Celeborn that came from Doriath, which was a question for me. Which which version of Celeborn are we going to get? Which version right. of Galadriel are we going to get? Um, and uh, it's they they said in the Amazon X-ray that he is the the, oh, okay. the, Sind, the Sindar from Doriath. Yeah, they explicitly. Okay, said that's that. very interesting. I didn't I didn't know that. Well, as long as we're getting wild uh, Celeborn theories, uh, Granola in the chat suggests that uh, maybe he started a nudist colony on Tolmoren. So, um, you know. yeah, the connection of nudism with with the family of of Morwen is a bit. Yeah, too, uh, let's go with another <laughs> island, please. Let's yeah, just exactly, let's not yeah. just go on that. Exactly. Let's just leave them at peace. You know, not, he's not, just getting not, back not, to nature, not, just re reconnecting with nature. Yeah, yeah the inebriated part of me does wonder how the drinks are like over there. <laughs> Well, let's let's move on to uh, we've been going for an hour and haven't even gotten past Galadriel, but there's a lot to chew on there. But let's chew on now the scenes between King Durin and Prince Durin, which I were probably some of my absolute favorites from the entire series. Peter Mullen is just fantastic as King Durin. Um, Owen Arthur, of course, has been crushing it as Prince Durin. And this scene really uh, was kind of the climax of the growing tensions that we've seen in their, all their scenes together. They clearly love each other. Um, but they have different attitudes about what Ka Doom should be doing. Prince Durin has been wanting to mine Mithril, and King Durin has been forbidding it. And now we throw in the fact that to mine Mithril is to save Prince Durin's best friend, his brother in Elrond, and King Durin is still saying no. And it's, uh, I think that this scene, the, the scenes between them worked on a lot of levels, both just narratively in terms of the father-son relationship, the political tensions, there's a lot going on there. But there's also deep Tolkienian themes that are coming into conflict with each other. So King Durin believes part of the reason that he gives for the denial of the, the request by Elrond is that they should respect the fate appointed to the elves, that the elves are essentially trying to cheat death. Um, and he, he says, you know, and this is a very wise, really wise move by King Durin. It's uh, because it's precisely the Numenorians refusal to accept their mortal nature. And then the elves parallel attempt to fight their own nature by wanting to stop the decay of time in the books that that leads to them allowing evil in the form of Sauron to sort of infiltrate their ranks. And it causes uh, all the tragedies that occur in the second age. So um, he is very keyed into a very, very critical issue. So you got to except the fate of God, basically. He doesn't say as much, but that's kind of what he's getting at. Um, and the, the exact line is, the fate of elves was decided many ages ago by minds much wiser, much farther seeing than our own, defy their will, and this entire kingdom might fall, perhaps the entire Middle Earth. Prince Durin, on the other hand, sort of represents and is advocating for the very Tolkienian 
the theme and value of friendship, fidelity to one's friends. And Prince Durin would do anything to save Elrond. And these two themes are very much coming into conflict with each other very directly uh, in this clash between these characters. And um, I just kind of want to hear everyone's thoughts about that and what ultimately happens, of course, which uh, with, you know, when Prince Durin defies his father's wishes, he is um, uh, he's no longer the heir. Elrond is kicked out and it sets Prince Durin on a path with Disa sort of egging him on that maybe we should defy King Durin's wishes altogether and do this on our own. And I think uh, for some sort of greedy reasons, Prince uh, Disa sort of indicates, well, we're going to rule this mountain and every other mountain. Okay, there's a little bit of greed coming in there. So um, James, how did you like these scenes between Prince and King Durin? One of the things I loved about them was that we're really getting such richness in dwarvish attitudes like this is such a, a lovely departure from the monoculture of all dwarves are the same and 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 they're just humorous and greedy or whatever right this was a lot more nuanced we get these different as you brought up these competing tensions of sort of fate on the one hand and friendship on the other hand the fact that there's such conflict among different dwarves just gives a depth to the dwarves that we haven't seen in other adaptations. And I absolutely love that. And you know, I love, Peter Mullen's wonderful because he's the one dwarf that doesn't have to put on an accent. He actually talks like that in real yeah. life, which is, which is right. wonderful. But, um, and, and I mean, also I want to point out, you know, during the fourth makes that one, he, he's one mistake in that conversation is to basically equate Elrond with uh, uh, uh with his other brothers his birth brothers and that seems to ultimately be what ticks <laughs> during the third off right this notion that an elf is at the same level um as as somebody that his wife had had born um i thought it was really interesting that you know again that friendship that connection of friendship is what during the fourth is is trying to convey prince durin is trying to convey but ultimately that's what takes it during the third over the edge um there's still some prejudice course, in there that rears its ugly oh, head oh well i mean it's sort of understandably i mean it was to to suggest to suggest that somebody else is as close as an actual blood brother i can see why that would upset one's father yeah. um but then of course as you mentioned we get disa being very lady macbeth um, yeah and yeah, it's just it's it's going to be really interesting to see it. They're, they're always always the amongst the most wonderful scenes in every episode is anything with uh, with uh, with the dwarves and uh, yeah. Uh, but in 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 some, I think it's just that richness of of perspectives within the dwarves is something that I really love seeing. Absolutely, and I I heard saw you nodding along. What are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, you know, I'm not sure that this is necessarily such a novel thing that the dwarves disagree. Minds always like rush immediately to Thorin and Baling disagreeing or that sort of thing. Uh, and it's the same idea insofar as that it's the same dilemma of do is it dwarves first, so to speak, which would be during the third's position, or is it just a kind of more globalistic point of view? uh you know and uh, but but it was still very very nice except i would say one one small exception would be and this is not something that had troubled me in previous episodes peter mullen in the role of during three very 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 interestingly 
totally underacts. The like he's not doing a ton of acting, not just because he doesn't have to put on an accent, but, you know. Uh, and here we see him very uh, towards the later scenes become very emphatic and and uh, you know, and it was a little bit like it took a while to get used to. I would say <laughs> so. That was like to see someone who so like acts so minimally. To now be very, very emphatic, I have to imagine being prodded a little bit by Charlotte Brandstrom, the director. Uh, yeah, it was, you know, took a moment to get used to. But otherwise, those were definitely some of the episodes, if not some of the seasons. Uh, best moments, I think, yeah. I've, I've heard it described uh, that there's a theory of acting where you actually act you do very little and you kind of yes yes you know, blank slate that you're okay there yeah there it is and the audience kind of can then project onto it yeah, yeah. Guinness used to tell david lean like less is more like if i add less yeah anthony That's hopkins is anthony hopkins is another actor that does that he just he just sort of says his like he, he has this remarkable ability of saying the lines like he's never thought about them before which is realistic right because we don't normally think about our yeah, Veltrod yeah. Meyer yeah. does that on the stage yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Strider how about you yeah so uh, so overall I, I, I generally I really love the dwarves uh, them and surprisingly enough uh, the Harpers have been probably too consistent too most consistently consistently um, well uh, done storyline so far and Durin and Elrond, they 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 nail absolutely every scene, every line. I really really love even even Elrond's uh, lines about the lore of whatever them fading and so on. When he's saying it to to Durin, you can see <laughs> that he's not very really, very comfortable with what he's saying, the actor. But even then, he actually kind of manages to sell that. So I really love everything in in this storyline. Uh, I like the that you can kind of understand uh, during the third and during the fourth both. Um, I, the one thing I dislike is that, that at, the, at least for me, please, I also would love to hear how you guys feel about this, but to me, it feels kind of like there's like a meta layer to all the warnings that during the third is doing because no one knows that that Balrog is down there. You know, no one knows that. Right. Like, there's no reason why they would think there is, like, we, sh we are the dwarves and we shouldn't dig too deep. Like, we, we shouldn't, we should stop digging uh, at some point. Like, they, they have a different, yeah, they have a different explanation, though, that, you know, the mining is perilous, that it could cause a collapse. So there's Yeah, that. but you, you can, he's talking about shadows and, like, being buried beneath the mountain. I think he's going a bit over the top. Like, it goes more... But at least that's how I read it. it. Goes further than just, you know, we might have like a mind collapse here. So what I would like to, what I would like them for, uh, for them to do is, to have some sort of a reference, um, like like even like a passing comment, something like that, something like that, that the dwarves also have at least maybe the the kings of the dwarves have this power of some foresight or something. So just give me a reason in the show why during the third would be like, you know, I have a bad feeling about this and it's maybe my power of, of sorts as, as the king of the dwarves, perhaps he has this power of foresight to a degree. And that's why he's against this because it feels like, you know, 
there's a shadow in the dark or something like that waiting for us and that will bury us beneath the mountain and so on. And it feels too much on the nose. And also, of course, we know what, what we see at the end of the episode. So Yeah, we'll get there, I think. I'm, right? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not happy with that. Overall, yeah, I love it. Happy with that, but too, yeah, we'll that aspect of Durin, the King, King Durin, I don't like that. So I'll, I'll actually say I, <laughs> I'm on the completely opposite end of the spectrum. I actually really like that. That they don't go too far in trying to nail down like foresight is a power, and as the king, I have the gift of foresight. It would that like that would have cheapened it a little bit to me. I like that this is just kind of appearing in the show as naturally as just kind of his wisdom, and we see foresight prop up in all kinds of places in the Silmarillion and the Lord of the Rings, and I think that's kind of more how it's presented. There are some there are some in, exceptions to that, um, glaring exceptions, which I'm sure Hen uh, will point out to me, uh, but uh, I don't know. It, it feels more natural, and also you see Prince Durin kind of talking about his father as like he's superstitious prince Durin doesn't get it um yeah. you know he, he thinks and disa calls him an old fool there's there's a foolishness to this to this belief that king Durin is advancing even though um, we know as, as book readers well there's actually a lot of wisdom there um but i want to throw it to harry and um harry i also want to add into the mix of course we do get the balrog reveal in this episode and Boy, the, the showrunners have already told us that they're not going to move anything from the third age into the second age. Whether or not that was a lie, I I, I don't want to believe I it was a lie. Is. So <laughs> I, I do not want to believe that the Balrog is going to emerge and we're going to see the consequences of the digging in the second age. But they're certainly pointing to that. Everything in the show is pointing to that. Um, and there's sort of a Chekhov's gun principle here at play. Why would they yes. show the Balrog in this episode if the Balrog is irrelevant in the story. He can't be irrelevant unless it, I, I kind of want it to be irrelevant, but um, I, I, I doubt that it will be. So Harry, can I just, just very quickly, uh, sure. and then Harry can. So I think they, it would be cooler if they handled the leaf falling down. Um, the leaf is falling. I think I actually mentioned it in the stream on Friday. Uh, the, the leaf falling down and we see it fall, fall, fall. And then, we can see some uh, like glimpses of like a fire that's away from the screen, that's not on the screen, somewhere below, and then the leaf burns in the air. I think that would have been way more subtle way to have to show us that there's like a ballroom there. But uh, Harry, I agree. please. I think that both are linked in a way, and I think the first part is the thing I liked about the do to do and scene. It shows the pride. It shows the the pride of the dwarves which I really liked because that is an important part of their character. Then at the same time, with doing the third, they do have pride but they're not stupid in a way. They have that sense of wisdom and we saw that with the foresight and I also agree that with going into it too much, like go to the technicalities of like how stuff like magic, stuff like that works, it's always better to have the essence and keep it, you know, more and more ambiguous. So I do did quite like that and insofar to the Balrog I think it's interesting because again yeah you mentioned it what's the point of showing it is it going to be like a looming thing that you know we don't really see again I doubt it I think we all here understand I think if they've gone to that much detail you know it was in the trailer everything it's interesting because as well, I think the fact is they showed it in the trailer and they've it's been nearly every single thing I feel like it's interesting that they've gone down that route and have make it a surprise. But with, of course, the Third Age, you know, that is when it actually happens. And 
the discussion of bringing it back is going to be quite a technical one. And do I think they will do it? I think yes and no. And more than no, but the reason I give such a, you might be initially saying, why have you given such a, you know, yes and no answer? I think if there is a technical way you can have the dwarves know the barogs there and un- maybe fight it at least once, but not actually have the fall of Khazadum, or maybe think they defeated it in some way, and then in future, then of course a stiff separate plot line happens you know Elitar's now in a region they can move on from that now they could talk about the rings and whatever or different plot line happens who knows maybe later on the show they're preparing for the for the last alliance but they have already maybe thought they have defeated the baroque then of course since in the third age everything still technically happens as it should mm-hmm. so i think that is a one way you can get around it or maybe them even just, you know, fight it off once or twice and then think, you know, maybe it's not a big a deal. No, of course, it's weird to think a, a massive fire breathing Barog is not a big deal, but I, I actually lead to the idea that maybe they do defeat it, but they don't, but then they don't defeat it. They defeat it, but don't uh, defeat uh, it, and that uh, leads to the fall. And I think uh, that uh, is. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's, I know. Uh, everybody wants to get on point. I know you guys get on point. So, so back when back when we first saw the tra- the the Balrog in the trailer, um, I had a long uh, Twitter thread about this, and just reading within Lord of the Rings, which is of course what they they primarily have access to, um, you know, it's clear that that Durin's Bane was not the only Balrog that survived the Great War. There were others that hid themselves underground. We're told that Durin's Bane lay hidden since the Great War, since the War of Wrath. And of course, that it appeared in in Third Age, nineteen eighty. So at the at the time, um, this was when the trailer had come out. We hadn't seen any episodes yet. I suggested that there's essentially four possibilities of who that Balrog is. Right? It could be a First Age um, flashback. We know that's no longer true. Um, it could be uh, a Balrog other than Durin's Bane. That would seem odd now. The chances of there being two Balrogs in in um, yes. in Kazadum seems odd. Say. Uh, so ruling that one out, but the two other possibilities that I put forward were that um, it's Durin's Bane, but he remains hidden. If that's true, why show him so early on? In the, why are we seeing him in the first episode, uh, first season, if he's going to remain hidden until the Third Age? Um, and the only other thing I can come, I, I came up with at the time was that sort of maybe similar along the lines of what Harry's saying that somebody else does find him, but perhaps doesn't live to tell the tale. Right, because we're told we're told that he was hidden until until the third age. So yeah. it's possible we'll see. That's from the point of view of the the people telling the account uh, in Lord of the Rings. Uh, it's it's possible he does get found by some people, and uh, news wouldn't, doesn't get out. Yeah, wouldn't wouldn't Occam Razor's wouldn't the Occam Razor argument be that just that they're moving this plot point earlier? I think that's a much more simple and much more compelling. Like, they just put it into the Second Age. It's a convenient way to have some sort of resolution for the Khazad Doom storyline, which otherwise doesn't have a resolution, really. Like, it doesn't True. have the kind of definitive that's a, that's a really of good ending point. that the yeah, other ones That's do. a really good point. If, if they don't have Durin's Bane appear in the Second Age, we're left with a Second Age Khazad story, which is basically... After Sauron, after Sauron attacked uh, Eriador, 
they close the door and we never and we don't hear anything about them. Yes. So, <laughs> right, yeah, that's, there's that. That's kind of dumb, but also, right? <laughs> but also, yeah, and also just generally, some uh, artists lie about their works. There are lots of artists like that. That's mm-hmm. just inherent to the way that some people talk. George Lucas comes to mind, but so just Sergio Leone, David Lean was sometimes like that. It just happens. Yep. They're showmen. They're going to make a show out of it. And they're going to make a show out of showing it, in a sense, if that makes sense. That's You're just... talking in relation to the showrunners saying that they're not going to move yes. it from the Yeah, I think it's a lie. Yep. Maybe Soberhen would say that, <laughs> but I do. Yeah. Um, I, I think like it, it could be. I think it could be the case. But I, I think they could have <laughs> the War of the Last Alliance. You know, the the, the ending of the show, the, the conclusion of the show. A lot of people are going to die. A lot of them. Yeah. And yeah, like, uh, one of the like things Hamlet. that yeah, dies. one of the things that happens during during the War of the Last Alliance is that all the races, save the elves, were divided. So I would maybe the way I perhaps I'm just brainstorming on, on the spot now, but. Perhaps have one part of the dwarves somehow be get corrupted. We, I think we had some rumors about religious sects uh, in 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 Kazadum. So maybe there's a division there, and then you can have two two um, two sides of the conflict in Kazadum. One of the basically the good guys and the bad guys, and there's a conflict, and they they can be on both sides of the last alliance. And that's maybe how they would conclude it. I don't know if. I, I want to, <laughs> sorry, if I want to see everybody die <laughs> everywhere and then also during dies and Casa Doom goes to dark and everything just goes like, that's such a, such a, such a dark way to, to close the whole show yeah, but, but, because but, so know, but, many people are going to die. Yeah, but you know, Hamlet ends like that. The ring. Yeah, but talking like is a Hamlet, you know, like, I, I wonder like how they, they, they will probably... Like that. Yeah, but no, but they will probably uh, make like Tolkien is bittersweet. He's not as tragic as Shakespeare. Like, there's a lot of tragic stuff, but there's always hope and all that. And it's going to be very hard to balance out all that doom and gloom that will inevitably come and make it hopeful, especially if they add, oh, by the way, this kingdom of wars that you loved for five seasons, it's just going to burn. And like you know, you need to really balance that out with some hope at the end. It's, I think it's going to be very big challenge. But I think, I think uh, <laughs> you may be right because the Balrog is there, and he's not there just to show up and in, in this. Okay, I, I, have, post, I have a theory. I have a theory scene. that might work for everyone. All right, we're fully in speculation town here. But uh, you know, and your point is, is very good that it would create a nice end to the Kazadum arc to have there be some that sort of correct. either in this se- season or a subsequent season or the whole show no, subsequent yeah um uh to have some sort of cataclysm related to the Balrog or the, the Balrog wrapped into some sort of significant event and um James your point that well uh maybe there is someone some dwarves interact with the Balrog but they don't live to tell the tale so uh, as far as anyone who's living knows um uh, he's been sleeping this whole time I think that we all know King Durin is going to die at some point in this series. Yeah. What if um, this is just fully speculation territory. The way he dies, he falls down a chasm somewhere and he sees the Balrog. He sees the shadow that is going to threaten the kingdom, you know, that confirms everything that he's been worried about. And that's how King Durin dies. 
no one else knows how King Duran dies because he's fallen into this cavern and he's unretrievable. Um, and so Prince Duran has to mourn his death and all that, not knowing that the Balrog is down there and not knowing that his continued mining of Mithril, which Prince De Duran now does with reckless abandon because King Duran isn't there to restrain him, will eventually, outside the scope of the show, um, lead to uh, Kaza Doom's downfall. That if they approach of, it that yeah. way, it could we, could we could kind of have everything, have our cake and eat it too. Yeah, that would be a very good way to, to wrap that up. Was, that was kind of the way Lakidia speculated that it would be as the episode was running. Yeah, but yeah, I don't know. <laughs> and since we're there, uh, shout out to Lakitia. Hopefully, uh, she's going to join us next week. We are missing yeah, her very dearly. Very, very much, yes. Yeah, and before we move on from the, the dwarvish plot lines, i got to say it is really a shame that we couldn't get both Lakitia and Varking on the stream because Varking, I'm sure, is just at war with himself. He's loved every single dwarf scene, and now the dwarves are, you know, disagreeing. He he probably is having an identity crisis. Torn in two. <laughs> yes. He's he's. Yeah, I'll tell you. I'll tell you his basic <laughs> mindset. He's happy that they that they shot off. That they're the best. And that uh and that uh Durin's bane is not gonna be in this, you know, which right. is you know tough luck. Varking well, would say Varking would say that there's uh, in, in, in every person there's two dwarves one is during the third one is during the fourth or some wisdom <laughs> like that <laughs> well and Lakiti would probably have a thing or two to say about the dwarves for kicking out Elrond and you know basically uh, sentencing all the elves to death right yeah, I, I wouldn't about. presume to speak in her name but I've made some of the points that she had made earlier about during the free being a little kind of overly emphatic and also uh i think we both agreed that the balrog reveal is a little cheesy on its own so yeah well so let's move on now to we got two more major plot lines to cover um we'll try and do it relatively quickly but let's let's touch on the harfoots and the stranger um I think actually what happened in this episode is very, very interesting, not just because it was very consequential to the entire group because their <clears throat> caravan was destroyed, the consequences of which are very obvious um, and significant. But Nori, at the very start of this show, she started with she's yearning for more meaning in her life. And when she discovers the stranger, she thinks that she's found it. You know, she thinks that fate has brought the stranger to her and that she's mm -hmm. destined for bigger things. Um, and so that's kind of, you know, what, what her inner struggle is throughout all these episodes. Um, and yet in each episode, we have seen the stranger be a danger to her more and more. And in episode seven, it kind of becomes too much. She's too afraid. Um, everyone else is too afraid. They don't hate the stranger. They know he's good, but he's just too dangerous. So they, he's asked to leave. And that moment for Nori, I think is very consequential because it destroys in her any, her desire for something greater, that's kind of, she despairs of that. And we see this moment where she says, I'm just a hard foot. I was kind of a fool for thinking there was anything more. That is very significant for her arc. Um, of course, there's then a reversal because the mystics come and um, her dad gives a rousing speech and she kind of gets back on the track, back on the trail and goes to hunt down the stranger. But um, we do see, you know, she has kind of, uh, this is a, probably the most significant emotional moment for Nori in the entire season. So James, let's let's hear from you about, and there's tons to talk about. You know, I'm just kind of giving my my opening thoughts. But we we get the mystics. We get you know he somehow heals the entire grove. Who does that tell us he is? You know, feel free to go in any direction you like with with these characters. Yeah. So I mean, there's a, there's a few really interesting things here. One is just yet another case where the only damage that the stranger does, including in this episode to to Dilly. Um, with the tree collapsing, tree branch falling on her, um, is always accidental. 
right? Mm. He's always he's always well meaning. There's no malice at all. It seems I agree. in the stranger, which I think is really going to turn out to be important in terms of who he he, he ends up being. Um, this just yeah. it just keeps being reinforced. Um, but that just to sort of jump ahead to the end of, of of this part of the story, that makes the actions of the mystics just even more shocking, and that's why that I use the word shocking in at the beginning of this uh, this discussion as my one word for the episode. Just the the wanton destruction that, that the the mystics didn't care of the result of what of of what they did with the fire. It was almost kind of like oh side effect, you've completely lost your your, your well being. Um, we've burnt it all just in in one one tiny little action. That was that really shocked me. Um, it's made clear, you know, one of the things I've been un, uncertain about with regard once we discovered in I guess episode six that the the mystics are looking for the stranger. The the question sort of was, are they looking for him because they're on his side or because they're not on his side? Um, it seems pretty clear now that they're they're at different purposes to the stranger they're certainly acting in opposite, opposite ways um so again what that tells us about who the stranger is and who they are who sent them what their goal is um you know are they ultimately trying to stop the stranger now uh you know it's going to be really that's probably the thing i'm most interested to see uh play out maybe in maybe in uh, the next episode are um, we um allowed to say spoilers from or Amazon have released promotional material wise or not? I think we should. I think it's important. You mean like, if, the, if, if like the trailer? The, it. Yeah, like, yeah, like trailers, previews. Previews. So, okay. I think, yeah, I think that's Ep- all. Uh, interviews. Right, okay, we'll get 10 seconds. We're going to say something that might. Um, okay, five, four, three, two, one. So basically, Amazon just released about a few hours ago a new promo thing. And it's basically got lines where. Um, the 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 mystics say to Meteor Man, "Are oh, you are Sauron?" So mm. and then and then they said and they say they have worked they work for Sauron and you are him and that's you can find it afterwards. Yeah, I think that came out. So I think that clearly shows. Yeah, but I, but there was also an interview of Charlotte Brandstrom that they want to capture the stranger on the behalf of Sauron. So yeah, you know. yeah. I think those lines, that's much more important than lines in the trailer that could be, you know, mixed together, presented out of context. Unless they, they say yeah. you are him, so, and you can see them visibly speaking, so unless who are they, unless Halbrand is, you know, there. Well, that's the somehow. exact line that, that's the exact line that Galadriel spoke to Halbrand uh, regarding mm-hmm. being the king of the Southlands, right? She says, oh. you know, she, she says uh, you are him. Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, okay, that, uh, so, um, I think it, it's important to bear in mind until the next episode uh, comes out that indeed it's possible that they put like two different sentences together and made like yes. uh, like a feint, you know. But well, I wanna I, I wanna say two things about the the identity of the stranger that for me felt very important this episode. So first of all, he he heals the nature, he heals the grove. And we had references to um, um, Avala, who takes care of the living things, and the emissary of that particular Vara, Avala being Yavana, was Radagast. And the now I'm, I'm actually after this episode, I'm actually leaning way more in the camp Radagast because also 
where do the Harfoots point him towards? Greenwood the Great. And we know that sure. that's the place where Radagast dwelt. So I'm actually uh, starting to, to lean more towards Camp Radagast. And I think it would be a very... Like, I think he is one of the stars. I'm, I'm 9% sure he's one of the stars. And the cultists are, for whatever reason, wrong. They will be proven wrong in the next episode. That, that's my... That's, that's where I stand at the moment. That's my prediction. But uh, I was thinking he was Gandalf. I was hoping he was a, uh, one of the Blue Wizards. But now I'm starting to move, in, because of the last episode, I, I think I'm starting to move towards Camp, Camp Radagast. I think those were like I, two pretty big pointers towards that possibility. Yeah, I still think he's Gandalf. But yeah. yeah, he could. He could end up being, but I think these were... I, why is he going there, you know? I think in, in terms of what they need him to be, they need him to be Gandalf more so than Radagast, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, Radagast is ultimately very minor in the grand scheme of things, Very doesn't carry a lot of significance to audiences, whereas with Gandalf, it's the same line of theirs, is it really Middle-earth without Gandalf? And, right. you know, so my, my much more is... so than Hobbits, I would say. Gandalf yeah. is much more iconic than the Hobbits. My my wife, who's not a book reader at all, has been watching it, and she's thought the whole time it's it's Gandalf. So I mean, that could be misdirection aimed at aimed at the 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 sort of casual watcher. But yeah, uh, but it would she's be picking up all the yeah exactly yeah she's you know, she's they, definitely they wouldn't on. want to do that yeah. But but to to Strider's point, I'm certainly back to being at least Istar <laughs> um, mm. yes. after this episode. Because you had sort of uh, been carrying a torch for the stranger as a Balrog theory, right? Well, that was partly because I thought if I go for the the wackiest theory, and it turns out like no one cares if you if you get it wrong, but if you get it if you get the unusual thing right, people are like, "Whoa, how did you guess that?" So that's that's partly why I was going with that. But um, but yeah, I think it's, and I do also, James. I do remember we did spend quite a few time, few hours in a pub talking about it as well. If you remember, all we, did. we did, we did. We did, so yes. it could partly be your yeah. fault, Harry. No, 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 no. your theory, not mine, not mine. Not mine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, uh, but uh, you yeah, know, right. as far as him going to the Greenwood, though, the Harfoots have kind of been in the general area all the time, so you'd imagine that he'd point them in. You'd imagine they would go into a landmark that would be familiar to us, you know? So it wouldn't yeah, but you know, a landmark that's also familiar is the Misty Mountains or Undoing. I mean, I don't, I don't disagree. That's a really good point. But you know, of all the things to point him at, this though, would be starry. Who is star? That's that's. Uh, they did. They did explicitly mention. They did explicitly mention the Greenwood, which was the yeah. fact that they even been even to do though that. there's no there's no forest in the shot. I and they they should be presumably hundreds of miles away. He pointed yeah. it, and I don't see a forest. And I'm like, looking, you're seeing a forest? I'm not seeing a forest. It's not there. <laughs> it's like someone forgot to comp it in. I don't know. What, what the hell? So predictions. Does uh, Do people think that these hobbits are going to survive? Or is there death uh, for some of them in their future? I, yeah, yes. There's a, a lot of ways you could go with it. Um, but, you know, they have gone off trail, which is completely counter to... It's their most sacred rule of self-preservation within their community is you do not go off trail. It's one of the two things that they that they chant when they're doing their, I don't know, their dance during the celebration or whatever. It is so important to them. 
and they're breaking that rule, uh, is that going to be, well, they're going to have good fortunes and thus proving that the rule was uh, foolish? Or um, are we seeing someone die, uh, some little short mm. person die in the future? Anyone can I think that. I think it's quite possible some of them will die. Like I, I think there's definitely conflict. Um, I think one of the shorts that we got short, short videos from, from, from Amazon, maybe last week, I think, um, the, what's her name? The mystic with the very short hair. Um, it looks like she, it looks like, it looks like she's in some sort of a conflict with someone. I, I, I don't think it was this scene from, from, from this episode. I think it's, it, it's a scene that we haven't seen in this episode. Uh, and I, to me, it kind of felt that the trees behind her were moving. It's been a while since I saw this. So since I saw this video, so bear with me. But it felt like the the trees behind her were moving in the same way that the trees moved when a stranger was upset or whatever in that scene, like a few episodes ago. And then the trees, you know, darken and like creak and so on. It felt like mm-hmm. so. I think they are definitely going to. Um, come to a com- like they will definitely have a conflict the stranger and the, the mystics and it's quite possible at least one of the harfords or two or who knows how many may die but i think at least one of them will yeah. be it, in danger and kyle pulled up the, the perfect moment it seems like sadik answered that question he says doesn't matter we're all <laughs> going to die <laughs> so oh no thank you kyle <laughs> okay, well that that that's it but also you, you know the the line in in when when they find Meteor Man uh, or Stranger and uh, I think Nori or Poppy, one of them says, you know, uh, something, um, what if what we're doing now is going to make us guilty for every, everything that go, uh, everything bad that happens in the next three seasons or something? They, have, so they said something like that. So, you know, I like maybe, maybe this is also the same type of foreshadowing there. Who knows? Right. James, can you give us a little bit of uh, word nerdery on what the stranger says when he is healing the tree? Absolutely, would love to. Um, and I, I love this because the words that he speaks, they're all, um, a lot of them are words that we actually find used differently or used in other places in, in Lord of the Rings. So he, he says, acuta, um, uh, which means sort of refresh. Uh, a, uh, uh, he says, a uh, inviata, which means renew. And inviatar is actually a word, a title that is uh, taken on by, by Aragorn, um, where it means the renewer. So it's nice that that gets used. He says, um, lote na. Um, he says, uh, lote na, which is an instruction, you know, be flowery, be flowering. Um, and then he says, uh, akuita, uh, or live. Um, which is that that same verb is used in the in the Aglario scene in in Lord of the Rings uh, when they're telling they're wishing that the the um, the halflings would would live live a long life. Uh, we get that verb as well. So it's it's refresh, renew, be uh, be flowered, um, and and live is what he's saying yeah. in Quenya. Ah, Enviniata that is on the screen. Uh, Radagast speak that speaks that line on screen. So yeah. That <clears> That would be a thing in the Radagast thing, but it's just <laughs> no. I knew yes, that. No. I, I I knew that as he as he was. Saying I didn't. It. So I so ah uh, so just to explain that, like ah uh, is the the marker in Quenya for making something an imperative when you want to yes. turn a verb into an instruction, a command. That's what the ah uh, is, 
and then N N is literally re to do something again, and and Vinya is new something that's new. So it's it's lit literally yeah, to well, become renewed. Yeah. Yeah, Radagast's spell is renewed be his life, the life of the you know the hedgehog. I don't know. So yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay, Han, thank you. You you just pushed me even further into Cap Radagast. Yeah, I pick that up immediately, but it still doesn't convince me that he's actually Radagast. It's just, a, you know, the sentiment in both cases is, is the same. Small wonder that it should be the same line. Mm, okay, fair Well, and we did get a random, seemingly random reference to um, Yavanna by Aaron Deer in a prior episode, and he didn't mention yes. her by name, but he said, mm -hmm. Not by believed, name, but yes. It is believed that one of the, the Valar, um, I forget exactly what it says, but you know, protects all yeah. growing things and the people they, that yeah, tend to them. Yeah. And yep. Radagast, of course, was the Astar chosen by Yavanna, at least if the Unfinished Tales version of how the Astar get there is to believe. And um, so he is he's a lover of, of birds and beasts and, and plants and a servant of Yavanna. And so it would be a nice little connection there if they're sort of seeding the existence of Yavanna subtly through other characters and other references, uh, which will make his reveal as Radagast a little bit more um, meaningful to especially to the new viewer. Who who chose Saruman? Was it Aule? Because I think Olorin or Gandalf was uh, Varda and Manve, right? So who was who was the one who chose Saruman? I think it was Aule. Aule would make sense. That would be my guess, just from who, what he's like. Yeah, I think the two blue wizards were Orome. Yes, they were definitely yeah. Orome. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think Radagast is going up on the list, definitely. Yeah, I, you've almost you've almost convinced me entirely, Strider. I, I, yeah. I'm still hoping for Blue Let's Wizard go. just because they're the ones I've yeah. always wanted to see and we know True. nothing about them yeah. and I, I want to know. But, you know, Radagast. I'm also, I'm, I would enjoy a better depiction of Radagast. Not yeah. to hate on, you know, the acting performance uh, by the actor that played Radagast in the Hobbit films, but um, the, they deliberately made that character kind of cartoonish. And mm. uh, although Radagast is perceived by Saruman to be a fool and Gandalf kind of acknowledges that he's maybe not the most serious wizard, he's still a wizard and not a cartoon. So I want to see you know, maybe a slightly more serious take on Radagast. Yeah, I, would, I think I would very much appreciate that way more than if he was Gandalf. Like, I don't, I'm not going to mind if it's his Gandalf, but I think exactly for the reason that you just said, it would be fantastic to see another wizard who is actually a good guy and to see him like a serious figure. And have, having strangers Radagast, I think that would be a really, really great move. Though and, you know, if, for, if Radagast for is bumbling, the stranger has been pretty bumbling thus far. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, Although, and just a, somebody on oh, just somebody in the channel is saying, wouldn't Radagast care about the dead fireflies? He did care about the dead fireflies. He was yeah, really he quite broken that. up. He was really broken up by. That's why he thought he was peril. Right. Mm. Um, I'm because, peril. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, let's get into, I think, our final storyline with the Numenorians. Before we do that, I just want to remind people to get your Super Chats in. Uh, if, you're, if you join us kind of late, we are raffling off um, some goodies by our feature, featured artist this week, the Nerdy Alchemist. Uh, if you uh, are the winner of the raffle this week, you'll get a full set of their um, uh, stickers. They have really cute kind of cartoonish stickers and charms, and you'll get a custom profile pick illustration from the Nerdy Alchemist. So... Uh, get in your super chats and we'll do a raffle at the end of this stream. Um, so the last one, yeah, the Numenorians here, and I kind of want to focus on Elendil and Muriel. 
Elinda loses his son, Mural loses her eyesight. And I think we can kind of chart it back to when we're introduced to these characters. In the early episodes, both Elendil and Muriel are closeted faithful. They're not only hiding their beliefs from others, but kind of also from themselves. They're trying to mm. assimilate. Elendil believes that it's for the best for his family to kind of put that in the past. Uh, Muriel believes it's for the good of the nation because Tar- she kind of buys into the notion that Tar Palantir and him trying to re- rejoin the, the elves almost was the downfall of, of Numenor. So she was kind of trying to push that aside as well. But of course, both of them hold that in their hearts. Um, but, you know, Elendil was also struggling with the loss of his wife. And uh, that grief was kind of intermixed with, with this whole relationship to the faithful. And of course, now Galadriel comes along and reawakens that the faithful inside of both of them and they go off to fight. But now they both suffered a major loss and their paths diverge going into the season finale. Uh, Elendil now, in addition to losing his wife, has lost his son and he is beyond grief stricken. He is not himself anymore. And he blames Galadriel. He wants to turn his back on Middle Earth. So his loss fully demoralizes him. He's pushed in, into despair. He's pushed away from the faithful. Uh, this is not the Ellen deal that we will see at the end of the Second Age, who is really the, the becomes the king of the Numenorians and leads them in the fight against Sauron. In contrast, Muriel, who loses her eyesight, emerges, I think, a stronger, more resolved leader. She's lost her sight, but yes. in other ways, she seems to be seeing more clearly than ever, mm-hmm. vowing mm-hmm. to return to destroy evil. So what do you think yeah. about the directions of Elendil and Muriel in this episode? I'll start with James again. Yeah, so, I mean, it's heartbreaking to to see what happens to Elendil. Of course, we know Isildur is, is going to survive, but Elendil doesn't. And just the, I mean, the the acting from from Lloyd Owens and just the devastation on his face is is incredible um and the fact that he blames Galadriel um to the extent that he does it's yeah I mean it's again I I used the word shocking at the start to describe this episode episode and uh, that was another aspect of it again not we know Ilsildo's alive but that doesn't take away at all what we feel um from a Lindell. Uh it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out how well maybe it's just the reappearance of a Sildor being alive that that turns things around for a Lindell. um but there's certainly going to be some really interesting uh stuff ahead in terms of how he comes to terms with with Galadriel and and the and the not the mission of the faithful but the belief that that what the faithful are faithful to Muriel, I think, is going to be a really interesting one, and and her return to Numenor is, I think, going to to be really interesting in terms of whether that's like, are they using, are they going to use Muriel's blindness as an alternative explanation for uh, Farazon's actions, rather than rather than that sort of taking as a as a as a wife against her will. I suspect they'll they'll skip the the wife thing and and make which is a shame. Farazon's usurping based in part on her blindness. That's that's where I suspect they may go with. I that. agree. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, go on. Did you? So I, I want to stick with you, James, and I, I I do think we will see in the next episode 
they already said they're going to be loading the boats and they're going to go back to Numenor. I think yep. we'll go back to Numenor in the next episode. I don't think we'll have any more of the Numenorians in Middle Earth. I'm curious yep. though, do you think we'll have any scenes in Middle Earth and before they depart? You know, will is Sildur be reunited with Elendil before they leave, or is Elendil going back to Numenor, fully believing his son has has died? In which case, there's going to be a long period of time where he believes uh, Sildur's dead, and Iarian's going to think that he's dead. Yeah. There's going to be all kinds of ramifications there. So it's, it's always interesting thinking about these questions, whether we're talking about what I would like to see, what I think will happen in the show, what I think would be good storytelling. They're not necessarily all the same, always the same yeah. answers. But but I I, I think. So maybe this is one way I could see it playing out, that Isildur is not found, certainly while Elendil is still on Middle-earth. Elendil does go back to Numenor thinking that Isildur is dead. We may not even see Isildur again in episode eight. That would be a really strong, dramatic choice to make, to leave us hanging, or certainly people, non-book readers, hanging about Isildur. Maybe that will be one of the twists towards the end of episode eight, is that we find out Isildur is still alive. I wonder if Isildur will end up maybe going to Pelagir, where we yes, heard, I see. heard that yes. Bronwyn and um, Arondir are going, which is interesting in and of itself, given that Pelagir was settled by the faithful... I, it's still going to be interesting to me how much where the Numenorean bits of the Numenorean story have been moved around to, um, yes. because obviously uh, the fact that I was surprised actually to discover that Pelagia exists, uh, that was a surprise to me. So it's going to be interesting to see what they've done there with the timeline. But yeah, I, I, if I had to if I had to put money on one thing, it would be that they Lendl leaves not knowing that Asildor is alive and that Asildor will maybe show up in Pelagia. Um, found by Bronwyn and, and uh, Arondir uh, towards the end of episode eight. That's that's my prediction. Well, Han, how about you? Do you agree or disagree with James's prediction? I'm o- I mostly agree. Uh, yeah, I, I think I think he will be in the next episode for a couple of reasons. One, we there's only so much open endedness that I think they will want to leave on episode eight of this, especially when season two is so far in the future. Yes. Um, yeah. And I think both paying off the, it's such a shame that Lickety isn't here, the the uh, Legends of the Four shot of Beric riding off. Like, that's a setup for a payoff, clearly. Oh, yes. And also, it's a good device by which to keep Other in the story as well, because Isildur is where Other and the Orcs still are. So that's That's thing. true. That's Whether true. he will be reunited with, I think he will go to Pelagir. Whether he will be reunited with uh, the Numenorians consequently of that is um, for something I'm not sure about because the Numenorians do send uh, a, a div- I don't know, not a division, but you know, a, a troop with the Southlanders to Pelagir. Yes. So those people will eventually also go on a boat, presumably, and maybe maybe Sildor will be with them, or maybe more interestingly, he will stay in Pelagir for. I don't know the better part of season two, or something, and get to know the locals, and you know maybe that. Uh, so yeah, that's that's uh, we'll have to wait and see. I, I am intrigued by. I think uh, James, the reason you were surprised is by the by the Pelagir reveal, is that give, earlier episodes have given the impression that the Numenoreans have not ventured back to Middle Earth at all, and yet here yeah. is a Numenorean colony. So. 
Well, you know, I mean, I, I've suggested before on, on Twitter that we're going to get a really interesting combination of a bunch of Numenorean kings in Farazon, right? That we're kind of potentially getting a bit of Minas Tirith, you know, Antanamir you know, and, and uh, you know, his grandfather and him. We're going to kind of get an amalgam of a bunch of them. But it's not clear in doing that where certain things like the settlement of, yes. of Umbar or the settlement of, of, of yes, yes. fit in here. Yeah. I have to say, that's one of the things that uh, disappointed me, that they didn't go for something more exotic like Umbar. I think that would have been a much more interesting place to send these people to. Although, although it, it occurs to me, if he does go, if he does go to, if Isildur goes to Pelagir, I can imagine um, at the at the very end of season five. Um, sorry, not the end of season five. The beginning of, I'm guessing, the beginning of season five, when after after the fall of Numenor. Um, I can imagine a Sildor kind of showing up again in in Pelagir, uh, and and saying, yeah. "Okay, I'm I'm going to I'm going to Anarian and I are going <laughs> to settle this yeah. area." Yeah, I um, think that's the setup basically. Yeah. And also to to speak to the point of Muriel, hmm, I I really wouldn't like. I think it is that her blindness blindness would be the catalyst for Ferrazon's coup instead yes. of the you know. You know, but I really wouldn't like that. I really wouldn't. I, like I think the, the, the PGing of the thing that goes down <laughs> with Ferrazon. I think it would be cool. Like uh, sorry, I thought you were there. Um, I thought oh, it'd be, I, I agree. It, it would be great. It would be very interesting to see um, Muriel and Ferrazon and everything that happens with two of them. It would be great to see that on screen because it's something uh, that people wouldn't expect from Middle Earth. Tolkien, based on the most popular, um, you know, things that most people know about, that that would be something totally out of blue. Uh, but yeah, it's a question whether we will see it or not. But I was very happy when I saw when I heard that Pelagir was mentioned, especially because uh, we, in the first few episodes, one of my biggest complaints regarding Numenor's storyline was that it seems that they don't have a navy. It seems that they haven't been to Middle Earth which means they haven't had the colonies. We discussed this several times. Like that, there's a lot of thematic importance there that they had the colonies there. And for me, that was, you, you know, the Star Wars moment, um, a surprise, but a welcome one to be sure. <laughs> yeah, Kyle <laughs> has, the, has the photo prepared, but it was absolutely like that, that. That was literally my reaction, a surprise, but a very, very welcome one. So I'm very happy that we got that. And I think it, it's going to be very interesting. I don't think Isildur will end up... I, I don't think he will end up going to Numbar this season. I think he will go to Pelargir. And while it would be interesting to go to Umbar, sadly, I think one of the problems of, of, of the show is that it has this very strict constraints, as far as we know, eight episodes and five seasons. Uh, so I think it would be, sadly, again... Uh, too complicated to go to Umbar and deal with yes. all that. So setting up Pelargir and, uh, you know, Anarion is later coming back here. Uh, that makes um, a lot of sense to me. But one thing I want to say uh, regarding um, regarding uh, Muriel, uh, I mentioned it also on, on our Friday stream, uh, the line that her father says, uh, what awaits you in Middle Earth is darkness. Yes. Yes, that was absolutely fantastic. So it's it works in several ways. It works, uh, of course, as the darkness, as like the literal darkness that is now, uh, you know, the land of shadows. 
it works as uh, Muriel losing her uh, eyesight, but also it works, it could work potentially in a much deeper way for Muriel and for, because if she is the queen of Numenor, it could work in a very special way for the Numenor. Numenor is now swearing, like she made an oath for Numenor to come to Middle-earth as conquerors, because otherwise, first they came to Middle-earth as teachers, as friends, as guides, and this could be uh, the first step towards the actual doom of Numenor, because they are now, like their queen is literally blind, and this may be a very, actually a very, very interesting, very cool metaphor for the down downwards path that Numenor will be enrolling from now. At least it looks like it. I think this was one of the better um, moments regarding this, the whole overall plan. If it goes that way, I think it will. I think this was a really, really cool metaphor here. Yeah, I agree. I think that uh, Muriel will be bringing Numenor's army back for good reasons, or at least her heart is good which Galadriel told us in her dialogue with Theo that, that that's the way men are judged. That's important. But also to effectuate that plan, she's going to be bringing a massive, massive navy, most likely, which will give Farazon the means to accomplish his goals, which is basically to subjugate Middle-earth. You know, we already know that that's that he's going along with Muriel because he thinks at the end of this, the elves will serve us. Um, you know, we can we can install a puppet king. We can get trade and bounty and and um, so I don't think that Farazan is going to usurp Muriel. I think that he is going to continue to go along with her fully because her plans are aligning with his. And over time, he will simp simply start gathering more power unto himself, which will not be difficult because she is blind and he may be able to uh, subtly, not overtly, but subtly um, subvert her authority while, you know, he'll publicly be behind her but subtly be subverting her authority and gathering more power to himself, which, uh, which is a wonderful power to Middle Earth. Yeah, which is a wonderful irony to given what Sauron's going to do to him. Yes. Oh, yeah. So, uh, Strider, I think you're right on that. We are we are seeing the the seeds of the future enslavement of the middlemen by the Numenorians. You know, and they they come as saviors, but very quickly that's going to turn, you know, not over the, you know, hundreds of years, like it occurs in the actual second age. It's not going to be a slow arc. It's going to be very, very rapid. Everything's being compressed here, but it, they are still kind of getting the order right. Right. I mean, they, they are coming to save the middlemen and in this first yeah. sort of with this expedition force, you know, three ships or five ships or whatever it was. Now they're going to be coming back again to save them, but with an army uh, um, strong enough to conquer all of middle earth and all the free peoples within it. So, um, I wonder if we'll see that in the season finale or if they'll save that for, you know, future seasons. So let's go ahead. And uh, I think we're at a, a good point. We've covered all the major plot lines and I, we usually don't do this, you know, predictions for the next episode, but we are walking into the season finale. This is it. I can't yes. believe it's it. It's felt like it's blown by. I'm really sad that this isn't a 20 episode show. <laughs> Eight episodes yeah. is not enough. Um, Couldn't uh, agree more. But uh, nonetheless, this is the, the season finale. And I would just like to hear from everyone. What do you hope will be accomplished in this season finale? Um, what do you think they need to accomplish for it to be a satisfying ending, I guess, is, is the way I, I want to phrase that. Um, and let's start with James. And before you answer, James, I just want to put one more shout out at the end of this 
little discussion we're having here. Um, we're going to do our raffle. So last chance to get your super chats in. Got a, got a couple minutes. Um, all right, James. Okay. So, well, one thing we didn't really talk about is whether anyone's changed their mind about Halbrand and, um, and his potential connection to Sauron. I am wondering if we'll at least get some resolution on, on, on that, mm. uh, in, in episode eight, I would certainly like to. I think there's a certain number of mystery boxes that need to be opened and revealed in in this episode for for it to be a satisfying uh, season. Um, I, yeah, um, I don't know that we're going to get much. We're we're, we're going to come back a little bit, I think, to the Eregion scenario. I don't know if we will get uh, a full on. Anatar reveal in in um, in a region yet. I, I certainly don't think we're going to get any ring forging. Although, do people have do people have opinions on what's in the pouch that Hullbrand carries? Because I, I I'm wondering if that's some kind of prototype of of a ring of power. But anyway, um, a, a token to enslave him. You're thinking that like Sauron is somehow uh, I, I think, using that. Yeah, I, I think there's I think they're forging. They're using something else to forge, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we're going to have to come back to that, right? I mean, this we, we're going to need yeah. a reminder that this is the Rings of Power, that this is fundamentally a show about how the Rings of Power came about and what ended up happening to those rings. Yes. Um, even though, you know, the Numenorean story is the other big second age story, I think we, we're going to need to make a little bit more progress on the rings. I don't, I don't know that we're going to get the forging though. So it, it's, it's going to be interesting to see. Um, in terms of other things that get resolved, I mean, we still, we didn't talk about the, the, the mithril healing the, the leaf, mm-hmm. um, which, you know what, I was kind of, if that was the extent of what mithril could do healing wise, I would probably be okay with it. That, that sits a lot better with me than, than, you know, completely saving all the elves by spring um how do you feel about sorry gentlemen, how do you feel about uh yeah. cory olsen's note that okay it establishes that the mithril heals whatever is rotting the tree but we still haven't established that it is true that the rot in the tree actually correlates or relates to the fading and death of the elves so my hope if we're talking about how this how the sort of mithril problem Fading of the elves problem actually uh, gets resolved. I am hoping that w- that they are simply mistaken about the the tr- what the tree rot means, and that yes, whatever's causing the tree rot can be can be healed by the mithril. I think we've seen that; that's proven to us now. Mithril does actually save the tree. What how that relates to the fading of the elves? I'm I'm still open to and hoping partly that that uh, maybe it's a misunderstanding misinterpretation that somehow the elves are going to fade as a result of that tree um going but yeah i i think what's caught that that would be nice if that were resolved too in uh, in episode yeah. 8 is what's causing what's causing the uh, the rotting of the tree um so yeah i'll i'll let others talk now well, and I'd also I wonder, and I'll open this to, to anybody, of course. But um, if it is the case that the whole song of the roots of Hithagler myth is a myth within the universe, it is a lie, a deception. Um, 
I don't think that the elves can be disabused of that deception yet because it's they're setting it up that that is the motivation for them to craft the rings. Um, and if they discover that it's a lie too early, then they have to create some other motive for for them to craft yeah. the rings. Well, well, and, the 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 song is not. There's two issues here, right? The what that that people have had law wise that I think are quite separate. One is the the song, which explains sort of the the origin story of Mithril. Yes, um, I think that's independent of the healing abilities of of, good, of good the point. fading of the elves. I think yeah, there's three point. things. I think there's three separate things. One is how did Mithril come about? And you know, a lot of people just really have a problem with the idea that it's there's some lost Silmaril and and blah blah. It's like really just conceptually with the idea that we need to know how Mithril came about. Did anyone read Tolkien thinking, "Gee, I wonder where Mithril comes from"? Like, no, like, <laughs> right, so never, that's one... never crossed my mind. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's why. So that's one thing. The second thing, yeah. which I think is is separate, is is this idea that that Mithril can heal. I have no problem with this idea that Mithril can heal. Um, uh, and then, then the third thing is the fading of the elves. The fact that they need to to do this healing by spring, otherwise the elves. You know, my, I have a problem with one and three a lot more than I do with two. But I think they're all separate. I, I don't. Some of them could turn out to be true, with others being turning out to be a lie. So the the song could be completely made up, and the fading and the and the healing capabilities of Mithril still be true. Um, well, we right. know the healing capabilities of Mithril are true. We saw we yeah. saw that demonstrated. Right. I think they're all true. I think I think we would wish that they weren't, but I think they're all true. <laughs> because for them to not be true would be to lower the stakes back down. And you just don't do that if you can help it. You don't yeah. introduce yeah. something that will raise the stakes and then say, nah, it was a lie. It yeah. would be like it would be like in Fin the Fellowship of the Ring, Frodo gets to Rivendell and then Elrond goes, Nah, that's not really Sauron's ring. You, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's just yeah, exactly. You don't do that, yeah. Yeah, you can't turn around and tell Durin, oh well, you know, it's just it's just the tree in Linden that's gonna die by spring. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. I think they yeah. could make all this not lose the sense of stakes if they just don't go forward with the actual creation myth of Mithril. Yes, like if they great. just leave that be, everything else could still work in relatively similar way. So I think that wouldn't be a huge problem like that. But in terms of things that need to get resolved in episode eight, I think we need to. I, I'm hoping Hullbrand, some if if there is a Hullbrand Sauron connection, that that gets uh, we we find out about that, and and there's some movement towards the forging of the rings, and the we find out what's actually causing the the problems with the the tree in Linden. And if there's a reveal about Hullbrand, whether or not he is or is not Sauron, do you think the way they would reveal that in the season finale? would be something that only book readers will understand or it, will it be fully revealed and made explicit for everybody? I, I think it would be unfair for them to do something that only makes sense to book readers. I don't think they would do that. Um, I, and I, and I've said this on Twitter, I'll, I'll, I'll say this here. Um, I suspect there is a sense in which Halbrand is Sauron, but it's not a simple Halbrand equals Sauron equation. I imagine it's going to be one of those things where the people that think that Halbrand is Sauron and the people that think Halbrand is not Sauron are going to be disagreeing about who got it right. 
after the episode's finished. Because I hope I, that's I, not the case, but I can see it happening. <laughs> I can just imagine yeah. it's something so, like, yeah, whether it's the splitting, you know, they split Sauron in two, Horcrux kind of thing, whether it's the, the pouch is somehow involved. There's got to be something yeah. to do with what's in the pouch. We don't know what's in the pouch, right? That that strikes me as really... Well, what Harry talked about with the, the promo for next episode, which I haven't seen, but I found shocking, the, the idea that the mystics talk to the stranger and say you know, you are Sauron, um, it evidences that there it could occur within the universe that a Maiar would not know who they are and they'd have to be told and that third parties, the mystics, understand yeah. that. Um, you've, reminded, and, you've reminded me that's the other thing I think we need to get progress on in, by the end of the season is who the stranger is. I think we do need. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah, season two is so far in the future that they really can't end on a, on a tease. They have to have a fair amount of closure, I would say, with most of the storylines. They have to have some teases, but they it can't be all teases, right? <laughs> we have to have a lot yeah. of closure. Yeah, some of the mystery boxes, yeah. at least one, has to be like fully closed. I would. Think. I, I think I, I think the stranger one will be a very big reveal. I I, th- I think if there's one that's going to be revealed for sure, or I, at least in like a very almost completely obvious way, is going to be the stranger. And I think the second one. Like Mike, we talked about last week, right? Uh, how how do we get uh, Halbrand to to Regian if he's in Sauron? Yeah. And well, guess what? He needs Elvish medicine. He's about to die, but he's going to ride across half of Middle Earth to yeah. the Elven, one of the Elven realms. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, yeah. that's one way to get him to to Regian, for example. And I think from the promo promo material that we got, I think that actually all of them, like even Gilgala, I think all they are all actually in uh, in a region. And I think uh, that there's also some uh, there's also a, a forging scene in the promo material. So I think we may because um, let's not forget Elrond has that one piece of mithril with him. So I, I think, think they're forging something else. Yeah, I we'll think they will indeed forge one at least one ring. Or a start of forging, or you know, like we're gonna One really get like rings. okay, we're we're gonna get a ring either this episode or the first episode, the next season, or something like we. It's I think it's gonna be very clear that they're really to work on this. Whether it's one of the lesser rings, that. that's a question. May not be so, but it's it's a it's a big I, question. Like we know that uh, Halbrand uh, or like Sauron uh, never touched the three Elven rings. So if oh. he is there, maybe he will arrive as the ring is being made. He will not participate in, the, in that one, or like maybe just all, or maybe not in all three other rings. If they made all, make all three of them at the end of the season, start of the next one. But as he recuperates from his whatever that injury is, uh, he stays there, and then maybe he helps with the other rings, maybe something like that, or it could be just one of the lesser rings. But I think I we're definitely think, uh, starting to work on this. I don't think they're melting the Mithril ingot. I think they're melting Galadriel's dagger to make whatever it is they're making. Ooh. Okay, that, that would, would be interesting. Ouch. Ouch. That would be really... <laughs> she looks at it so pensively in so many shots yeah. of the previews. Oh, yeah, it there is. like she's making peace with parting with the thing that oh, is... Oh, like you think she willingly and, gives it up? I think she willingly. No, I, I think somewhat reluctantly, but still, like that. It's you know, it's her last. Like it's a totem sort of. of, of yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. she has to part with it because it's from Valinor or some sort of malarkey, and they need to make it into <laughs> like that. you know, 
I, well, it's in, the, it's in the sh- it's in the shape of the two yeah. trees. It's in the shape of the two yes, trees. So yes, it partly it has that power. Yes, yeah. exactly. Oh, I like that idea. Well, just from a you know, in terms of the way it relates to her emotional arc, um, we got a nice little super chat here that asks, "What about Adar? What will happen to him?" By the way, can we all acknowledge now that he's basically the creator of Mordor and Sauron is lame? I fully agree with that uh, diagnosis. But uh, no, that's that is something that I'm really interested in as well. We haven't mentioned. I mean, Adar, I think, is a fan favorite. I, I think he's the one character that everyone universally agrees has just been awesome. Well acted. Very interesting. All the scenes are great. Um, we know he's alive. The concept uh, you know, is very successful. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So do you think we will see anything of Adar in the last episode? Are they just going to kind of leave him by the wayside, follow the other characters and, and he'll, you know, we know he's alive, so they'll just bring him back in season two, or is he going to be a player in whatever occurs in season eight uh, or in episode eight? Harry, I'll go to you. If he's, I'm pretty sure he's dead in the next episode. I think that is Ah. the, the, the way they'll probably go for it. I'm not saying that as confirmed. I'm saying that, Actually, fair, Joseph Morley did even make a tweet that I still need to have to take down. He basically speaks like his time is over, playing the character. But I think you can't have two people. You can't have a Sauron and then someone else who is the villain. There has to only be one villain. It seems like we've seen so far Sauron and Adar, they don't like each other. Rather than, or they don't like, there can only be one, you know, true person full of evil. If, you know... Anatar's going to end up doing whatever he's doing. Well, Sauron's as Anatar's going to end up doing whatever he's doing in Eregion. How we would knowing, be doing that knowing that there's a king in the Southlands who's basically amassing all the orcs. Like, he's going to need to solve that first. So, and if Halbrand is, you know, Sauron, whether, whether or not, maybe a confrontation between the two could result in Adar's legacy, however way, but I really find it hard seeing him survive in this season. I'll be honest. So that's my initial um, way I take. And also, thank you for the ten dollars super chat from um, Corey Castle. I think Barking did one as well. Pretty appreciate it. I think it's a sorry to the fans of the show, Mr. Buck Post, about Team Adar. Hell no, he's the only villain a character I want to survive. Oops, sorry. Uh, that's actually the worst thing to read out right now. So, back to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, can I think we get... Ad- uh, yeah, yeah, I just want to agree. Adar is absolutely amazing. He and the orcs were one of the stellar constants of the show so far. Like every scene Adar is in, he absolutely steals the show. And the whole plot around the, the orcs, I think it's very well done. And... Uh, all the yeah. payoff that they got, I think it's earned throughout because they, they set up the thing of the tunnels the whole time. They really, they, they were searching for the sword. Uh, they were doing this for Adar and we know why, why they love him so much. Like that's literally that orcs actually love someone. It's this guy who, yeah. who acts as a father and who is very protective, but he's also like, he is one, honestly, for me, I was saying that to a friend today. Adar is one of the most fun things I've ever seen so far regarding um, the entirety of Middle-earth because we here see an elf who is also an orc, or as he would say, Uruk, uh, and he's struggling between those two, and we never saw that. And even Tolkien had like so many 
uh, versions and thoughts of what happens with org. Do they have a soul? Are they this? Like, are they that? We see this discrepancy between in in the conversation between Galadriel and Dar. She's like, no, you're mindless beats, you're abominations or whatever. He's like, no, we are also the children of the one. I think they absolutely knocked it out of the park with orcs and the dar in every possible sense. Like 11 mm-hmm. out of 10. Of, of and the- I hope and, he will stick around yeah. as and much to as add, possible. And to add to that, I think with the whole um, with the thing with the dar, I'm really, really happy that people are, that he's one of the favorites because I think I was I've had the chance I've had to be able to speak to Joseph Moore. He's absolutely a brilliant person. I think it's a shame with the marketing we haven't seen him speak really or do interviews, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But I think you can see with some of his post public posts, he really does understand and goes really in depth. And I'm just so yeah, he's just a great person. I'm really happy that, you know, that people we got a super chat saying how much, you know, they don't want him to die. And I think if he that does unfortunately have if it happens in the next episode, I think it's going to be they the show the people say the show is too scared to kill off characters. I think that would be quite an interesting one to kill off if that is his resolution. I'm not saying it is, but high possibility. I agree. Yeah. Uh, you know, of of the concepts introduced in this season, which would be the Mithril, the creation of Mordor. Um, the sympathy kind of for the orcs or these renegade orcs, this one is easily the most successful. Uh, so yeah, very, very interesting. And yeah, I agree that he kind of has to die. Yeah. At some point, uh, for sure. But hopefully not, not, not in this season. <laughs> you know, there, there is a chance that he isn't because, you know, it seems that all the major characters, the ones that have been labeled as major characters, of which Adar is one, uh, survive more than one season because if they didn't like if they didn't or if characters that are strictly in one season would have been labeled as major characters Waldrake would have been one because that's absolutely one of the most memorable parts of the show <laughs> uh, and one of the biggest like one of the people that one of the characters that most thrusts the story forward and you know like you know, he has more to do than like five or six of the major characters put together. So you know, but you know, so that that's I think I think all the major characters are characters that are in this for more than one season. Do any of you think uh, that there's a chance that if Adar uh, Adar survives, and most of what's going on in the chat, most of what has been suggested on this panel is, well, if he survives and he continues to grow in power, he becomes more of a Dark Lord type. Is there a chance that his arc is actually one of redemption? They've laid the seeds for you know, potential that. redemption of orcs. I think um, that would be interesting. Me and him have gone so far back and forth over this over the last month. I think it's possible, redemption. very, but I hate it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think I, I, uh... I have conceptual issues with redemption arcs for villains who do things that are just unredeemable. And Adar, um, I think it's very easy to take someone like Adar and confuse the sort of pity that we have for him with actual sim. Like uh, it's like uh, you know, like he's still a terrible person, a terrible, horrible, abominable, awful individual. Yes, someone's not fun. Without, well... without <laughs> no, no. I mean, that's not to say that we shouldn't pity him. But he absolutely is an awful individual who kills without any remorse. Or any I don't know. I, I don't think. I don't think. That's that the case. I think he 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 did. 
uh, I have to disagree there. Uh, he did give a chance to people to, you know, go away or join him or whatever. So I think, you know, as far as villains go, you know, that's one way to do it. And we like he he took in Waldrag and he he was like, okay, I need I'm, I'm going to give you like the guide who just joined my side. I am going to give you the most important task I've ever given to anyone, which is creating Maldum. So I don't know. I I wouldn't mind seeing a redemption arc for him. And actually, I yeah. proposed this idea a few, in the I previous weeks. I think it cheapens uh, the evil. Yeah, but he, he doesn't have to be. He doesn't, he doesn't have to get redemption. He can be. He can stay the antihero. He can stay even an evil type of person. But I could see. I'm not saying I want to see this, but it would be cool to have. It, it would be. It, it's an interesting idea to have a tribe of orcs fighting against Sauron uh, in the Battle of the Last Alliance. And that's, again, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mentioned it before, it's based on a technicality that says all the races were divided on when it was the, in the Battle of the Last Alliance, save the elves. So all races. If we're going by that line, technically it's possible that some of the orcs fought against Sauron. And I'm not saying it's going to happen. I don't think they have time to go into this as well. But it would be, like, they don't have to redeem them. But Sauron is the oppressor. It could be the sort of enemy of my enemies, my friend, which is like the elves and the men. So I could see that, and I'm I'm, I'm not sure I wouldn't mind. I, I would mind that because Adar I, is just so fantastic. I don't know. I, I, I don't think I, I don't think Adar can survive all five seasons, but I think oh, that's he will survive. Yeah. I yeah. think he will survive more than more than uh, episode eight because we need to still establish Sauron's connection to. Mordor, and we also need to establish Baradur, and I think it'll be really interesting. We maybe we'll see the beginnings of Baradur's foundation in in episode eight as well. But th there's still, I think, a role for Adar in in season two, perhaps as part of a transition of power. Once once the rings of power, you know, once the One Ring has been forged, and Sauron actually reveals himself to be Sauron, not Anatar, that might be a good opportunity. That that's the point at which. Adar needs to fade if if Adar does fade or get yeah. killed or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I'm going, I agree. And also, as Corey Castle says, I think I agree in some regards. She's, I think, for the super chat again, thank you. Soldiers fighting for your freedom and homeland have killed much more and have statues. Also, how do you justify without remorse, judgment? And again, if it's everybody, there's battles all the time. I don't want to say, I don't want to say people kill us now, fight. I'm not saying that, but it also goes to the fact, Isidar inherently evil. If, you know, he was one of the first times I got twisted, was it his choice that he's now ended up having to do this? And I think you take that aspect of that evil character and being able to play with it and toy with it, I think it's psychologically quite an interesting take, knowing and knowing that the final evil is still not him, is Sauron. I think. Yeah, but he's still evil. Well, but it's far no, more survival, I think, I, I, in my opinion. It's absolutely impossible to call Adar anything other than evil. I very much disagree with that. That he's understandable and pitiable does not make him less evil. I he very much disagree. He's fighting for survival. You can understand. He's not evil. Yeah. He is evil. But then. It's the fact that if it's his choice or not, and the, that's the reason why you can at least feel pity or sorrow. And then if he does end up, you know, seeing the, the wrongs of his ways or trying to improve for the better, 
you're not going to go suddenly go, okay, he's, yeah, he's great now, he's perfect, do whatever. It's the, at least having that moral understanding that it's more complex than him just, you know, going out one day, killing people for fun because he's psychotic, because he's crazy. Because that is layers of how he originally got captured one of the first elves and how that works out. And of course, yes, he's killing human villages and there's battles happen. And I think there's just a psychological understanding that you can break down to not make him, you know, have a full redemption arc, but you can delve more into the character. Yeah, sure. But redemption arcs, redemption arcs usually are like, oh, he dies and he kind of sort of earns his absolution in death. I don't want that either. I just don't want a martyric death for him. I Mike, what do you think of Adar? Evil. No, I think that's a good point. I, I, I've been kind of um, smiling and sitting back here. I, I accidentally, we got a question here that really got people energized right at the end. And, but it is one yeah. of the more fascinating issues. I mean, we spent a lot of time talking about it in the last episode where they sort of introduced the origins of the orcs and this notion of the, the, the gray in them, you know, narratively and then the origins. Um, so I think uh, hand touch is really important point is that when we talk about redemption we can't be talking about a- absolution at no point can they say like uh it's okay at our with the things that you did because we under we under we pity you those are kind of two different issues um but yes it is also very important that he there is gray to his character and in that the yes. show has to do a good job of showing of contrasting him with sauron who is to be the true evil in the show um, I mean, even Sauron in theory, you know, there's some gray to him as well in the text. But I think of the show, they could go in different directions. But the gray in Adar has to be in contrast to the pure black of Sauron. And I think that we will see that because when Sauron comes back, we know that he enslaved the orcs, whereas the orcs follow Adar willingly. And so if Sauron defeats Adar, a big part of that is he's going to be re-enslaving the orcs. And we have to see that. We can't. I would be very disappointed if Adar dies and the orcs just kind of just turn and bow to their new leader and there's no issue there. They've established that the orcs were tortured, they were killed, they were subjugated by Sauron. And we have to, there has to be a pitiable moment, another one where we pity the orcs again because they're being subjugated by Sauron. And I think that's that that's going to be the key moment of contrast because Adar is going to be so sad because these are his children and he loves them. And we're going to pity him in that moment. He's still evil and the things that he's done are evil. But um, we're going to I think we're going to have a very kind of emotional moment where uh, uh, you see where we pity Adar because of his loss. And he has some good inside of him, even though it fueled heinous acts. Um, Sauron's going to come in as the big, big black, you know, bad daddy and um, just show us how bad bad can be. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I think he's marching towards a very. um very like epic anti-hero that scene like you know he uh sauron shows up kills adar in the duel and then just uses the ring to enslave the orcs and i think i think more or less that's how it's going to end for him which i think it's going to be cool i think they did a really good job of which this debate (laughs) clearly shows uh that that people will care about him you know like i'm not saying he's good i'm not saying he's redeemable but there's, as you said, there's definitely, definitely a lot of great to, to him and a lot of potential for like this anti-hero type of thing, which we don't have a lot of those, I think. I mean, there, you know, you can argue that there's anti-heroes, but I don't think it, uh, anyone is like this clearly in the middle 
from yeah. good and bad as Adar. That's why I said I think for me he's one of the most fascinating things in in the entirety of Middle Earth lore and whatever. If you, I mean, this is not lore, but you know, this is like a show. And I, he, he's absolutely fantastic because he's literally in the middle. Like he um, puts the seeds in the ground. He does the same ritual before the battle. That's like a pray to life. Uh, despite the, in the spite of that, that Aronir does like 10 minutes afterwards. That's absolutely amazing for me. So yeah, I'm hoping he gets a very epic end. Uh, and I think again, yeah, if if we're able to explore that, it's one of the most um, interesting aspects of it because you can't just write him off as evil, bad, you know, this is that when you have oh, that the rich Okay, let's read out Corey Castles. Actually no, that just makes that because Hen actually has served in the army. So that ruins that yeah. anyways. They say you guys keep saying even heinous. Anyone on the panel ever served in the war? Swords or carpet bombs. What's the difference? I think the point they're trying to make there that okay, even with the earlier one with the Galadriel saying, like, what's worse than saying she's gonna commit and basically a mass genocide in front of she they're saying that in front of, you know, Adar. I think that it just adds the fact that okay, and how many times in history have you seen even humans just people they're just they are trying to try survive and that's his way of surviving. And I think I'm not saying he's going to be now, you know. He's going to be, you know, like Elendor. He's going to be loved, revered. That's not going to happen. Whenever you kill someone and take away his people's homes or whatever, that is, it's, it's inevitable. You're never going to be fully redeemed. But being able to explore that and at least see an insight into how, um, how that results in Adar, at least seeing from a moral understanding how his character works and how. He, is he he's just trying to find a home for his children? I think that was regards. He's trying to do what his best for his race and for his people, his children to survive. And then if you put it like that, you can like delve into that. And that's why Strider for you is one of the most interesting aspects of the show. And writing mm-hmm. it off is just, you know, evil, bad, you know, kill most people. Okay. Killing something oh, all the time. I think evil can be perfectly understandable and very pitiable and very sort of rationally justifiable that doesn't make it less evil if anything it makes it more but i'm not saying it's less evil i'm saying you can explore an other side of it you can explore how okay that's evil but even for the most evil things that is still good in it because he is that relates back to his character he was twisting so he's still enough putting the seeds at the start of the battle and just same as adon i think being able to see that him being good doesn't make him less evil, but exactly even even saying evil is like even Duff Dog says it. Evil is an overused word. There's a nuance with no. this character. There is there is a nuance with the character. Yeah, and and I think being able to see, of course, you know, the more virtuous things that he is trying to, you know, get make a place for his family for his people. If the show explores that, it's an interesting thing for the character and it's quite compelling, something we really haven't seen in these adaptations. So I think that's one thing we can all agree on is that this show is touching on themes that are very, very meaningful, that Tolkien explored, and that it's getting people to have conversations like this that are very difficult. Um, I mean, there's no simple answer. A lot of what we talked about, we talked about the lore and there, you know, there may be easier answers, but this is getting 
to very core issues that are hard for anybody to tackle. So I think this is just the beginning of the conversation, not the end. And um, I do hope that they deal with the Adar storyline and the Orc storyline with, um, you know, delicately and uh, smartly because it is touching on some of the most important themes that the show will be dealing with for, for whether or not he lasts for five seasons, it's going to be setting up some important stuff for a couple of seasons. So I'm looking forward to that and talking about it more with everybody. Um, we are getting on the, the back end closer to four hours and three hours. So um, let's go ahead and call it. I think Strider, we've, I've done this every week and I want to kind of throw it to you. Were there any fellowship of fans? And you know, we got Harry on here too. Are there any fellowship of fans leaks that proved to be correct in episode seven that you'd like to take a victory lap on? Yeah. Harry can maybe answer this one. Says we here. Um, as in regards to leaks, I think we're going with episode seven and episode eight. There's always going to be less than that, but I do think the whole aspect of we spoke about a human village. Oh my god, these lights! Do my head in. Um, what's called these we a village set they've been filmed in for months and months. Then they've got we learned that nearly like millions and millions, well not millions, but like worth of resources were burnt down villages burnt then they were built again and now we can understand why that's happened because they've used it you know they've used it for you know the the Tiharad villages burning so that was one that was a big core theme and i think the fact i think we did touch on but we didn't officially reveal muriel's blindness the fact that when coming to middle earth it may not be the best scenario so yeah i think um i think yeah those are the two main things but i do think for these next few episodes we're gonna see less and less because you know these are really secretive and yes i'm seeing a chat for harry to come to the light he has to first touch the darkness fair enough fair enough well i want to thank all the panelists especially everybody from fellowship of fans and harry uh, for joining us for the first time and i kudos to you for making this stream uh, living performance art where you're playing out the themes of light and dark that the show <laughs> um, I, I appreciate your commitment um, and special thanks to, to james tower um james why don't you tell everybody where they can find you i already mentioned the rings wrap up um, we got a number of other projects that i think are really worth checking out for Tolkien fans yeah, so certainly in terms of sort of content creation generally um, <clears throat> relating to the show, you mentioned uh, Rings of Power Wrap-Up, uh, the podcast that I'm on with Alan Sisto and Sarah Brown. Um, but also uh, I run the Digital Tolkien Project, which is a scholarly project that does sort of computational analysis of the, of the texts of, of Tolkien, primarily the books, uh, but I also dabble a little bit in, um, in things like the subtitle files from uh, the TV show and also the Peter Jackson film. So do a little bit of stuff there. You can find me at digitaltalking.com. Uh, it's the main project site and also on Twitter as uh, Digital Talking. Fantastic. Yeah, that's, that's great. And it, uh, a profoundly helpful resource for anybody who really wants to explore Absolutely. the text. I mean, the things it, it you help, can do it helps. That, Lots it helps more when, when lots you're more like coming, a, lots more coming yeah, by the way it helps so much when you're like in an argument with someone <laughs> that's the main usage <laughs> you just you know okay you you don't think that person was mentioned in the log rings okay just a second and then you go and you know that helped quite a few times in the past month and a half i have to say it helps. So, to hear it. Good. <laughs> well uh of course 
um, after this stream is over, you can come back and listen to it on YouTube. We'll also be putting out the audio from these uh, panels in our podcast stream at the Watch Party Network. Watch Party, Lord of the Rings. We'll have the newbie panel in a separate episode and this lore panel in a separate episode. So you can listen to it in your car or wherever. Um, thank you, everybody, for joining us. I think we're getting ready to do our raffle now, and I want to announce the winner. Thank everybody for their super chats. As always, really appreciate your contributions. Um, our big winner today is Corey Castle. Corey Castle. So thank you so much. And uh, we'll get in touch with you or you get in touch with us on Twitter and uh, we'll coordinate with uh, the Nerdy Alchemist to make sure you get your your winnings. And for anybody who didn't win and wants to get some stickers or some you know fun gifts, you can please support the Nerdy Alchemist. Go to their shop. Uh, you can get a discount code for 20% off at ROP Watch Party, R-O-P Watch Party to get 20% off anything at their store. So that'll do it for us. Thank you, everybody. Join us next week. We'll be breaking down the season finale. I can't wait. Also, I'm very sad that it's ending. So well put. <laughs> so thanks to the we panel. We can always thanks do again, a retros retrospective kind of recap. You know? We will do that. I think we will definitely do that. We'll have an extra episode at least after once the finale. because you want to have some perspective on it. Yeah. Yeah. I think we'll be back. We'll, we'll ha they'll have to tie us down to get us to not do that. So we'll, we'll be back. All right, uh, I think that'll do it. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.